I've told this to many, many people. Brains are a commodity, right? I can buy brains. You, don't ever let anyone say the best part of your skill set are your brains because you can hire the smartest lawyer, the smartest banker, the smartest architect, the smartest engineer, the smartest accountant. Brains are a commodity. They're absolutely for sale. What else do you got is the thing that we look for with people, and I know you do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And the truth is you won't know that if those people aren't in the office. You won't know that if you don't randomly take someone out for lunch and talk to them about what else they're doing. Yes, they can run an Excel spreadsheet. Yes, they did a great job at a model. Yes, they did a great job at a pitch book. But that's not the difference between success and failure. One Path is a long, winding, unpaved, back-breaking, bumpy, miserable road to a place called success. The other road is straight, paved, smooth, comfortable, and that road ends up in a place called failure. Welcome to the show. I am Kyle Matthews on the Matthews Mentality Podcast, where we dive into the mindset of the world's most driven founders, CEOs, business moguls, athletes, and entrepreneurs. Each episode will turn our guest wisdom into practical advice that will help you build a deeper understanding of what led them to success and the mentality behind what got them there. Let's get started. Welcome everyone to episode two of the Matthews Mentality Podcast. I am your host, Kyle Matthews, and sitting here with me is a longtime friend of mine, Mr. Dan Horwitz. Dan, thank you for coming. Pleasure. Appreciate you coming out. Now, I'm going to start, as I always do, I'm going to read your bio, and you, you know, you have accomplished a lot, so I'm going to actually have to skip over some parts, but I'm going to read the bio because it's important for the audience to understand who we're talking to, how much you've accomplished, the experience, and uh, I'm just going to dive in, all right? Sounds good. All right. Daniel B. Horwitz is the co-founder and CEO of Raider Hill Advisors. He has spent over 35 years navigating all aspects of the real estate industry. Prior to Raider Hill, Mr. Horwitz held a variety of positions in the retail and real estate sectors dating back to 1986, most recently during a 16-year tenure at DDR Corp., now known as Site Centers, a publicly traded company. Mr. Horwitz led numerous departments beginning with leasing development in 1999 and culminating with the responsibility of reviving the company in the post-recession era CEO commencing in 2010. That's about the time I met you, Dan. Mr. Horowitz served as interim CEO of Bricksmore Property Group, another publicly traded REIT from February 2016 to May 2016. Prior to joining DDR, Mr. Horowitz served as Senior Vice President, Director of Real Estate and Corporate Development for Boscov's Department Store. Dan, he yeah, graduated of Colgate University and the Wharton School of Business Management Program at the Uni University of Pennsylvania, frequent speaker at real estate industry functions. You, de you definitely are a frequent speaker. Repeatedly been a guest discussing retail and real estate trends on CNBC, Bloomberg TV, Fox Business. Professionally, Dan is a member of the board of directors of WeWork and serves as chair of the audit committee. He's also currently a member of the board of directors of Bricksmore Property Group and service provider Ideal Dental. Dan serves as an advisor to the board of directors for Eden's and ShopCore Properties. Previously, Dan, you had served, I think it was 2019, 2020, as chairman of ICSE, member of the board of directors of GGP from 2013 to 2018, serving as lead director and chair of the special committee advising on the sale of the company to affiliates of Brookfield Asset Management. Additionally, you've served on the NAREIT Executive Board of Governors, Governments Committee, Board of Directors of DDR, Cube Smart, 
Sone Sierra Brazil. Did I say that correctly? You did. Excellent. My Portuguese is is on point. And Boscov's department store outside of the real estate sector. Mr. Horwitz is chairman emeritus of Colgate University Board of Trustees and football alum. Dan, I have been looking forward to this for quite some time. I can't thank you enough for coming to Nashville. I'm happy to have you. I'm happy to have you. I was saying the last time we were in Nashville together, it was, I believe, February 28th, 2020. It was the open air conference. Right at the end. Right at the end. Right uh, at the end. I think you and I had a private dinner with six, seven other folks. I think the chief economist of Blackstone was there, and they had just revised public earnings guys from ten percent down to zero. And you know, none of us knew what was coming, but it was the first conference I remember. You know, dapping people up with a fist instead of a handshake, and it's kind of like, what's up with that? You know, but a lot has happened in the uh, in the last three years, right? Well, a lot has happened, and I, I just remember that particular conference because there's this this sort of pending doom coming with COVID, and there was five, six hundred people there, and there was one little bottle of Purell yeah. on the table, and they were recommending that people use the Purell. Yeah. And for five or six hundred people, they had one little bottle of Purell on the table. Not enough. Well, we we over the next you know years we got we got familiar with the Purell. I just remember thinking like, I went to s- stick out my hand to shake it. It was someone, someone was like, well, I, I prefer to, you know, do a fist bump or yeah. thing. Like, What's wrong with that guy? But then little did I know, you know, but here we are in Nashville three years later. I, 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 I wanted to mention something to you. I don't think I've ever told you this story. You're one of the reasons I moved from Los Angeles. So I was, I was in New York. This was, this was probably 2018. Myself, some of my teammates were at your office. I'd flown in late the night before from LA. I'm on Pacific time zone. And I had an early breakfast, and so, I, you know, if I'm going to make an excuse, there it is. But I had a meeting at your office, I think it was like 9.30, and I was meeting with you and Joe. And I was sitting there, we were talking, I think we were working through a portfolio sale for you at the time. And I was I was low energy, admittedly. And you've never been shy to be candid. Which is not like you to be low energy. Not, yeah, that, yeah, that's right. So, and you've always been candid, good and bad, which I, I've always had gratitude for. And you kind of, halfway through me, like, you're right, Kyle? I go, yeah, yeah, why? You go, you know, you just kind of, you seem kind of sleepy. It's not a good look for you. And I was sitting there, I was like, oh my God, man, that's not good. And I just said to myself, I was flying home. I said, you know, I'm coming to New York so often. I'm going to Chicago and, you know, South Florida, Dallas, Atlanta, in addition to the West Coast. And it was like that three-hour time zone. And I knew the company was getting bigger. Travel was only getting worse. And I said, I can't, I can't live in LA. And, and it was, it was, it was part of the reason, but I, I, I reference that story a lot, so I appreciate you. I appreciate you kicking me in the ass and getting me out of there. Well, you were growing a business, and it's very hard to grow a business flying coast to coast on a regular basis, and 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 your business is transactional, and it, it's all relationship. I was going to say it's all relationship. That's relationship yeah, driven, which means so I got to I got to get in front of you. You got to get in front of people, and you got to get on a plane. And you got to go do it, and and then on top of that, you got a family, and you got other things to do, and and you were exhausted. I was tired. You were exhausted, and a, a young man uh, <laughs> like yourself should should not have been low energy. <laughs> no, I was low. You just I remember so, you looked at me like not a good look. Not a good look. So uh, anyway, the feedback was appreciated. So what are you up to today? Where, where are you spending your time? What what's keeping you busy? Well, at Raider Hill, we have a variety of different clients and different services that we provide those clients, and 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 we try to. We try to get involved in a lot of different things, whether it be the open air business, the mall business. We do some direct investing with partners. We do advisory work. We've started a new ESG division 
because it's a it's it's a it's a hot topic and it's it actually is, a service yeah. we hadn't provided clients in the past that they've asked us for. You know, the funny thing about things like ESG is that everybody who's talking about ESG had a full-time job before ESG came on board. And now all of a sudden they have to spend all this time on ESG and they look at you as an advisor and they say, can you help me with this? Because I had a job sure. before I had to deal with this. So we started a division in ESG and, you know, we just try to stay in the business. We like to know what's going on. We, we, we stay active and current and, and, and try, to, try to provide the service that our clients need to mitigate risk and maximize value. I and mean, we say that and it, and it sort of rolls off the tongue to some extent, but the truth is that's our only job. You're based out of Manhattan, New York. We're in New York. Been been at your office. Yeah. Grinding. And, yeah. You know, professional dress in the office. Is that that's important it, it, to you? It is. You know, we we we're back in the office. We we don't have we don't have work from home schedule. Although we do have flex time, I tell them sure. we're very early on flex time. You can work any ninety hours a week you'd like. <laughs> I but, remember but, that. But 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 we do have people. We're in the office. We're in the office daily. We think it's important, particularly. You know, we saw an interesting thing occur during COVID. The class of analysts that came in the year before COVID advanced much quicker than the class that came in during COVID. So the ones that were in the office before we all were dismissed really were moving along at a faster pace than the ones that came in and then immediately worked from home for a year. And as a result of that, it really opened our eyes to the importance of being in the office, the importance of mentorship, the importance of people walking by and saying, what are you working on? And do you have any questions? And what's going on? And we thought that we didn't really do it for us, having people in the office, as much as we were doing it for the others, the people who are trying to grow, because we're helping them get better. So generally speaking, the younger professionals. Yeah. The younger analysts who are, who are trying to fight their way to the top and get there, they're not going to get there if there isn't a significant exposure to different things at different times, not just running spreadsheets or doing models and because you're asked to do them. It's, it's the intangibles that you pick up in an office sure. that we think is very important. So we, we were back early in the office, and I'm glad we did it. So – if I hear you correctly, you're saying, hey, you know, if you've been in the business 25 years, working from the office, even then, I think we'd both argue there's value, there's a benefit, but they could very much get away with being productive and a high level of execution or whatever their assignment is, being at home. It's it's those, you know, one, two, three, five years into their career. Well, I think that's right. I mean, individual assignments, I've told this to many, many people, brains are a commodity. Right. I can buy brains. You, don't ever let anyone say the best part of your skill set are your brains because you can hire the smartest lawyer, the smartest banker, the smartest architect, the smartest engineer, the smartest accountant. Brains are a commodity. They're absolutely for sale. What else do you got is the thing that we look for with people and I know you do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And the truth is you won't know that. If those people aren't in the office, you won't know that if you don't randomly take someone out for lunch and talk to them about what else they're doing. Yes, they can run an Excel spreadsheet. Yes, they did a great job at a model. Yes, they did a great job at a pitch book. But that's not the difference between success and failure. The difference between success and failure are going to be all the other things that are not a commodity that you have and that you possess. And what you really want is people to see that. And people can't see that. 
yeah. on Zoom, and they're not going to see that at home. Yeah, we talk about here is you know mindsets over skill sets, skill sets, IQ. Oftentimes, perhaps you can teach you can teach someone how to run a model. Now, there's people who might be better than others. You can teach someone the skill set of whatever the profession is. The mindset, it's not so much you can't teach it, and if you're not around them, you can't see it or feel it either. And your your buddy Don Wood was on a week ago, and he was talking about. EQ over IQ. Yeah. Right. We were even touching on AI very much, not replacing, but but competing with IQ, but EQ, it's not there. It's well, not. IQ, you know, IQ is interesting. We don't, everyone, everyone that's, that, that we do business with has a high IQ. Yeah. You know, we're not, there's no lack of brains. That's what actually what makes it a commodity. EQ is special. I agree. And if you have that skill, you must continually put yourself in a position to use it. So was it was it tough? Was it a challenge getting people back in the office? I know New York was was where COVID hit the hardest, and, and I'm sure many of the, the folks who work with you had a direct one degree of separation from someone who was significantly impacted. Was that was that a challenge to get them to, to see that value of being in the office? It really wasn't, and I think that's that's, that's more indicative of who we hire than New York in general. I mean, everyone in our office at one point in time had COVID, right? whether it was before they came back or after everyone came back, including myself. You know, we all got it at one point in time. Yeah. But coming back into the office, most most of the people in our office were anxious to get back and get to work. There were some people that had some concerns, and, and those are fair concerns. I mean, I that's okay, yeah. but that's not the rules. I mean, I I get it. It's not the rules. I mean, I had great respect for the people who expressed concern about that. And, but the rules were they had to come back to work. What are some of the biggest challenges you're facing today at Raider Hill? I think probably our staff right now and our team that we have is, has been with us a while and really in very good shape. I mean, we, I feel very, very fortunate to be working with the people. We have a lot of continuity, both at the senior level and the junior levels. So I think that that's that's been great. I think probably the biggest challenge we have is is just the environment in which we're trying to operate. You know, it's just really really hard right now in the real estate sector. It is. And 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 <laughs> and, and, Jeez, and, and yeah, and, yeah. And, and as you know, and and it's yeah. really hard and and you know, people it, it, and if you've been working in, in, in real estate for really less than eight years, you've never been through a recession. You've never been through tough times. Yeah, and COVID the, was a stop start. Yeah, yeah. It, that was an event. It wasn't a process. You know, that yeah. now we're, in a, we're into a process, and the process is a sort of a downward process. And so, so th- things were very, very good. You know, they were good for a very long time. I thought we were good. It was, it no. Was, it was the market? Well, never, confu- <laughs> never confuse brains with a bull market. <laughs> <laughs> very, very important. Fair, fair play. Never, never confuse brains with a bull market. And so the people who have never experienced a down market before worry. They worry a lot. But those of us who have been around for almost four decades, I mean, like I said, uh, mm-hmm. we talked about earlier, we have a 100-year flood every 10 years in our business. Yeah, I love that line. And, and, and we do. And, and we'll, make our, we'll, we'll muscle our way through it. It's not going to be a great year. Next year might not be a great year either. That's okay because the two prior years were actually quite good. And, and that's just the nature of the business. I think it's been three black swan events in the last 15 years. The GFC was a black swan. COVID was a black swan. Whatever you want to call them, raising rates 450 basis points in 11 months of black swan. Yeah. It turns out black swans are actually very common, right? Very so, common, uh, yeah. We'll get to dive deeper into the challenges. We'll, we'll talk 
a little later in the show about the economy, real estate, and where it is today. I, I actually wanted to focus on you. I mean, you're still going hard even after all these years. And, and I know you would never say this, so I'll say it for you. Is like you have achieved so much success, okay, professionally speaking, so much success. What, what drives you to grind the way you do still? Well, I'm having fun. You know, one of the things that that's happened in, in in the business is that as I've as I've grown through the industry, you know, you find yourself having to do business with a lot of people you don't like, and working with a lot of people that you don't like, or in some you don't even respect. But as you get older and you can call your own shots a little bit more, you really only do business with people you like, and you work with people you like, and it's a lot of fun. It's 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 a blessing in in many ways. So as I get up to go to work every day, you know, I'm working with people that I like. Our clients are people that I like. You know, we do say no to people on a fairly regular basis, not, not because they're bad people. It's just that they're not a good cultural fit for mm-hmm. us and I don't need that aggravation at this stage of our life. And it's quite frankly not even a, a, a good lesson for the younger people because some of those relationships can be very, very difficult. So over the course of a you know, 40-year career or close to it, you know, you, you, you have a lot of negatives and a lot of positives. So when you get to, to, to this later stage, you really focus on the positives and it's a lot of fun. Right. How, so motivation now is like, hey, I'm having fun. Again, these are my words, not yours. Probably wasn't always the case. How have your motivations changed over the years looking back at your career? Well, <laughs> your drivers. The, the, yeah, they've changed a lot. I mean, well, at the beginning of, of the career, you're just trying to get noticed. You know, you're just trying to just grind and, and, and hope that someone remembers your name. I remember back in the late 80s when I'd go to a Vegas conference and I would go to the men's room. I, just, I was just hoping that I'd walk down the hall and someone would say, hi, Dan. And, and, and no one ever did. It took many, many years. Because it provide validation that you were doing something th- right. That, I, that they remembered me. You know, yeah. giving people a reason to remember you, that the way you did business with them, the fact that you had dinner and had a good time, whatever it might be. affirmation in that. Yeah. yeah. Was, but but so, so motivation changes. You, you know, go from wanting to be recognized actually to wanting to hide a little bit. And, and that's a sign of achievement to some extent. But I, I, my motivation now is I've always, I've always liked to build things. It's really fun to build. You know, my first job out of college was on a construction site. I really felt that even the work that I did as CEO of DDR, you know, the stock price had gone from $66 to $1.54. I became CEO. We were able to build a company back. Yeah, I should have bought it. And, 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 <laughs> <laughs> and we were able to build a company back over a five-year period of time. And, and, and you really were building things. I'm not a great cheerleader. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a great... Just maintenance Spectator, person, yeah. you know. I, I I like to build things, and and even 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 the challenges that I've had elsewhere. When 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 Bricksmore had its issues, and I went in as the interim CEO at at Bricksmore before the tremendous job that Jim Taylor's doing there now. But that was that was just building something back. So I I, I enjoy building. I enjoy fixing. But I'm not a. I'm just. Not, I'm not a. I'm not good at maintenance. Just. Just sort of watching and cheering and slapping people on the back. And I. I, I get reckless and I. I get. And I not reckless. I get. I get restless. You're a football guy. You gotta be in the huddle. I get restless and I. And I need a. I need a project. Yeah. I need a project. And Raider Hill for me, has been. A, a has been. Has been a project because Joe and I started the company. My partner Joe Tishar and I started the company, and we were two people in a Regis office. 
you know, waiting for the phone to ring. It was and, fun though, right? And it was it was fun. It was it was filthy, by the way. The, the office. That was Joe. Joe. The, 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 the office that is disgusting. Like Joe, right? No, Joe. The office. Joe's is the most put together guy I know. I know. You know. He's 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 pretty put together. I don't think I've ever seen his hair <laughs> messed up. I won't mess up his hair next time I see him. But but that's so 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 building things and 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 getting up and driving and and and, and moving something forward, as opposed to just maintaining. So I asked you the question, how have your motivations changed? You answered it. But let me take it even further back and, and convert the question to how is your mindset or mentality? Like as a kid, were you always driven? Were you always into building things? Were you always this high achiever who was just – I mean, you're an intense guy, right? And, and were you always like that? If, if I were to ask somebody who knew you as a kid, would, would they say, oh, you know, Dan, I always knew he was going to be this? Or was it something that maybe was unlocked or uncovered by you? Like, how would you describe yourself as, as a, when you were younger? You know, that's an interesting question because I was the youngest grandchild in our family. When we go to my grandparents' house, they would always go around the table and they'd talk about my brother, who's absolutely brilliant, and then, and my grandfather would always used to say, you know, my how brothers is, a, my brothers are a music uh, he's an author, an author. That's yeah, right. my brother's a, a very accomplished author, yeah. and and he's absolutely brilliant. And they'd go around and they talk about, you know, how's everyone doing at school? And my brother was always doing great, and yeah. my my cousins, of course, were perfect and stuff. And they'd always get to me, and I was least likely to succeed <laughs> in the family for sure. I was the youngest grandchild. I was a bit of a pest. My 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 mother, you know, would would say I was an itch. All the time because I was I was just doing stuff. So I, I don't I don't know the answer. You know, like my family, I don't think would have thought that I was particularly driven. In fact, they, if my father were here today, may he rest in peace, he probably would tell you I was I was the one he was most concerned about. But it it works out. You know, you and 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 sports has parted to do with that. You know, being an an ex athlete and and competing and wanting to win and having the sense that other people are relying on you. And that, that was all very important to me, being part of a team and, and, and wanting to, to help others be successful. So it, that, that's a real motivating factor in my life. And, and sports has been a big impact. Was, when it, in both your, I'm just going to ask about high school, your high school, academic high school football, was it something where you were just naturally good and you relied on natural talent or, or were you, was it a combination or were you maybe not as talented, but you were just so driven and so locked in and disciplined? Yeah, I was, I was not the most talented. So it was more, it was more driven. You know, I, I very, I remember very clearly yeah. my freshman football coach in high school telling me that um, I would probably never play varsity football at that school. How'd that make you feel? And, and that was, that was not only, you know, I thought he was a senile old goat anyway, so I didn't take him all that seriously, but at the same time, it, it woke up the country club a little bit, yeah. you know, you, you, you realize that I'm going to show them something and then I ended up doing fine. And, and then the same thing in college, you know, you go in, when you go to college, you know, you're good in high school, but when you go to college, oh, yeah. everyone's good. Oh, tell me about it. And, and you, and you walk on mm -hmm. that field and, 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 and it could have, and, and again, I was, I was by far not one of the better players. In fact, I was lucky to be there, but at the same time, I was an important part of the team and, and I was able to carve a niche for myself. And that's kind of what I've tried to do, either carve, carve a niche for myself Academically or athletically or professionally, not not something that I can necessarily follow in someone else's path. Because you know, if you follow in someone else's footsteps, you know where it leads. Mm. I, I kind of like to create my own, and I and I made a lot of decisions 
that were contrary to what other people would have done, primarily because I wanted to go my own way. I'm not focusing on your football career just because it's football. I, you know, I get that. <laughs> That I could, that people could draw a straight line from that. But uh, how would you describe your game as a player in football? I'll give you, a, I'll lead you here a little bit. Was it you were a tactician? Was it you were just more uh, relentless and you know kind of nasty? What, like, because then I'm gonna ask, I'm gonna ask a follow up question. Like, would you say that was also how maybe someone would describe you professionally? Well, I hope they wouldn't. I wouldn't. I don't. I hope nasty doesn't come to mind. Well, you, but, know, you, know, you know, like but, nasty in football is like would never no, quit, play, play to the very end of the play, play into the whistle stop guy, like just relentless. No, I tried to be very technical because quite frankly, I wasn't a good enough athlete not to be. Okay. You know, sometimes people have to be very technically competent. You know, your foot movement has to be right. Your hand mm -hmm. movement has to be right. You know, you have to watch a lot of film. You have to understand who you're playing against because 90% of the time that person's better than you. That's how I was. I, I felt that 90% of the time the person I was playing against was going to be better than me. So I had to work harder. I, 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 would, I would take a swing at someone every now and then. You know, you, you, I was an offensive lineman, so that's, that's what happened. You protect but, your quarterback. Yeah, you have to do those sort of things. But it was never, it was never relying on athletic ability because I really didn't have very much. Colgate. Why Colgate? Great school. I, and, and I love the Colgate guys you send us. They're, <laughs> they're, they're studs. But well, just walk us through how you ended up there. Well, you know, I had a very, I had a great, I had a great, great coach in high school, and I was being recruited by a lot of great schools. And as I started my trips, I remember he said to me, he said, you know, you're going to go on these campuses, and you're going to have these long weekends, and they're going to put you with the football players, and you're going to have a great time. He said, but ignore that, and look around the campus, because you're one injury away from being one of the other people, not the people you're staying with. And don't go to a school where you don't like the other people because that might be you. This is back in the days when you didn't have a portal, right? So there wasn't a lot of transferring and yeah, everything like that. No portal. And I had done my, a bunch of different trips, and I was fortunate enough to do a few trips to schools I didn't like. And then when I went up to Colgate, I, I loved it. I mean, it was just – it was like – You love Colgate. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've known that about yeah. you since the time. Well, it was good. It was very good to me. And the school did a lot for me. You've, did, you've been very good for the school. Yeah, well, I think there's it, a building it, named it, after you, right? But you give, you got to give back, you know. Yeah. And 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 they've done a, they've done a, they've done a lot for me, and Colgate did a lot for me. But I went up for my recruit weekend, and it was just it, it just felt like home. I'm just, I, I'm surprised I haven't seen a, a Dan Horwitz NIL collective yet, so you can buy <laughs> some of the athletes. You know, let's get started. We'll, we'll go to dinner tonight. We'll talk about it. All right. So you're at Colgate. You graduate. Did you, you – I think you said your first job was in construction. So I was going to ask, did you go straight into real estate? Like walk us through yeah. your career at the beginning. So coming out of Colgate in, in, in the in the mid-'80s, a lot of people – don't forget it was the go-go 80s, right? Everything was great. This was before the mm -hmm. crash, the first crash. Reagan. And 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 it was it – was, First um, crash, you mean the savings The stock, stock market crash. Stock market crash, 87. Yeah. And, and we had – it was not hard to get a job coming out of Colgate back in those days because you had 650 kids in a graduating class. You had 300 go to professional school and you had over 100 companies come interview on campus. So you had a bunch of jobs. And I had sort of the Wall Street jobs that, that, that people were looking for, but I didn't like any of the people that I knew that were taking those jobs. And I was pretty comfortable that I wasn't going to like it. So I had done an internship with a real estate company and they had offered me a job 
And so I took it. Oh, there was no real estate in the family? No, it wasn't no. wasn't a family business? It was not a family business. Mm. It was a gentleman that was uh, ran a mall company out of New York. His daughter actually did a visiting semester at school, and uh. I met her. And my father, he mentioned to my father, he knew my dad, and mentioned to my dad that his daughter was going to be there. So I made sure she uh, had, a, uh, had a good semester. He offered me an internship, and I got to know him, and then he offered me a job. And I remember very clearly I had all these other job offers from the Wall Street firms and I went to see him. I said, you know, what are you going to pay me? And he looked at me and he said, if you're so stupid to take your first job based on what you're going to make, then you're not smart enough to work here. What was the name and of the I company? And I said, Shopco, the name of the company was Shopco. It's okay. S-H-O-P-C-O group. And I looked at him and I was like, I'll take it. I'll never forget it. And, I, I and then made, you said, no, seriously, though, what are you going to pay me? And I didn't know. He wouldn't tell me until I got my first check, and it was $227 a week. I'll never forget it. Which, by the way, was $170 a week more than I was living on in college. Yeah, I so I, so I, thought I, was, I thought I was rich. But he just looked at me right in the eye, and he said, if you're going to take the first job out of college based on money and not opportunity, then you're just not smart enough. You know, we'll talk later about mentorship. I know it's, it's such a huge part of – your leadership, your mentoring, how you run your company. I know you've mentioned mentorship so many times over the years. Probably every time I've met you, you've the word mentor in some ways has come up. It's amazing how at times throughout our lives, especially just professionally speaking, somebody will say something to you, to me, or to, to anyone, and he, may, he probably wouldn't even remember that. But for you, that was, I mean, you remember it to this day. It was impactful. I mean, he, he, he just looked me right in the eye, and it was... And I, I, he was right. I mean, he couldn't argue with it, right? I mean, what difference did it make whether it was going to make $227 a week or $350 a week or $500 a week? At that point in my life, it really didn't matter. It is all about opportunity. And what was the and, right opportunity for and, you? And that was the right opportunity. But just the challenge that he put in front of me, the way he did it, I mean, I, I, I just sort of had to take the job. So talk to us about the challenge of so many – People coming out of the workforce, or sorry, coming out of college, say entering the workforce, sometimes maybe even mis mis messaged in terms of what their expectations should be as to relating to. We touch on work life balance, but really like their career, building a career, building wealth. Walk us through those first couple years in your career, what you're what you were working on, what your day to day looked like. You could touch on your work life balance or that lack thereof. Just Kind of tell us what a day in the life of Dan Horowitz back then looked like. Well, back then, you know, I showed up for my first day in New York because I thought I was going to be working at the company in New York. And they sent me to Westminster, Maryland to build a mall. Mm. And I really was what they call a clerk of the works. So I had this, this fancy education and all I really had to do was be able to count the number of workers that each trade had on the job to make sure we weren't being overbilled. It really wasn't – there was nothing intellectual nothing about glamorous. it at all, nothing glamorous. You know, working in a construction trailer versus Wall Street, most of the people thought I was totally crazy. But I loved it. It was great. You know, you, you, you had to deal with all the different contractors. It was a, a, a sure – you know, a construction job like that is a melting pot. And I worked 18, 19 hours a day because I didn't know what I was doing. You know, the truth is I was a, a history major from a liberal arts college and I'm on a construction site and I had never been on a construction site before. I, I mean, I wasn't – I didn't grow up driving nails and, and this was a, a challenge that, that was put before me that I kind of admired 
their bravery in even putting me there because I was completely unqualified for the job. I mean, not even close. So I had to work a lot. And not because the job was so hard, it's because I was so unknowledgeable. That, that most people could have done in 10, 12 hours, so it was taking me 18 hours. I mean, I didn't know how to read construction drawings, so I had to memorize each plan, each page of the plans. Because if someone was, I was walking the job and someone asked me a question, I, I couldn't say, I don't know. Yeah. And then I didn't know how to read them. So you had to memorize them through rote. I mean, it was very interesting. But then, interestingly enough, the superintendent on the job quit. And the managing partner of the firm came down and said, you're not the superintendent. And you bring this job on time, on budget, and I will bring you back to New York, and I will get you involved in everything that I do. And that was a six-month challenge at the time, eight month, maybe eight months. And we, we did that. We brought the, the job in on time and on budget. And he lived up to his word, and he, his name was Arnold Praver, and he was a wonderful man. And he brought me back to New York and got me involved. I don't think there was a meeting that he was in for four years that I wasn't part of. And that was invaluable. It was invaluable. And I, and I met people that I never would have had a chance to meet otherwise. And it elevated my, my exposure to the industry by 10, 15 years. So at the age of 27, 28, I just knew a lot of people because he was dragging me along. And at that point, you did you went to was it Boscov? I went to Boscov's because Arnold had a, a heart issue. Okay, and 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 was retiring, and the company was going to change dramatically and get away from development and go into asset management only. And but Boscov's was a a a partner on a deal in in Maryland, and I had a, again an option to go to two mm-hmm. different places at the time. One was the Taubman Company, which was also a partner. Sure, and and wonderful, wonderful people who were interested in my services at that time, and as was Boscov's. But Boscov's was an interesting thing. I, you know, I, I thought our business, the, the, the folks that understood retail were ahead of the people who just understood real estate. So I wanted to be in a situation where I could learn something about retail. Albert Boscov, who was you know, one of the great merchant princes of our time, was interested in me coming and running the real estate group. And he was going to put me in the office next to his. And I figured, well, I was just going to learn a whole bunch of stuff. So that was a, a tremendous experience and probably the best, not probably or without question, the best part of all of it was I met my wife there. She was a buyer. So I met my wife at Boscov's and, and then the rest is, the rest is sort of history. 30 years later. Now uh, you got a new boss, right? That's right. That's right. But it, it, it was a, a, a tremendous experience for me. And again, aside from, from, from meeting my wife, the professional side of it was I learned the, the, the retail side of the business. So then when I moved from Boscov's to DDR at the time, it was interesting because I went back to what they, the retailers would all say, the dark side, right? I went back to the landlord's side, but mm-hmm. I knew all the retailers because I was one of them Sure. for many years. And in retail, that having matters. relationships with retail retailers is – that's where the value is created so often. Yeah. Let me, let me push pause on your, 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 your career trajectory for a second. We'll yeah. get to DDR obviously – just the first decade or so, you're you're in your twenties. You're grinding. Did you did you always have a plan for your life? Is do you always know like I want to be the CEO? Here's my plan. Here's my vision. Or was this just something that that just kind of happened? 
it it really just kind of happened. It, it wasn't it wasn't any great plan. The only plan that I had was I had someone tell me very early in my career that one of the biggest one of the biggest shortcomings people have is that they're satisfied being good. And you should never be afraid to be great. And if you're great, the market won't let you sit on the bench. The market will take care of you. So instead of you planning what your next move might be, just go to work every day. Don't be good. Be great. And you'll get recognized because very few people are truly great. And this is one of my, one of my mentors yeah. t- told me that. And, and, and I, that, always, that always stuck with me because even though there were things that you were doing every day that you didn't like, it didn't matter. You, you had to be great at it anyway. And if you could be great at something you don't like, then you actually had the opportunity to move to the next level so you didn't have to do that stuff anymore, right? You get somebody else to do it for you. So, so that was really – my motivation was just not to be good, not to be average, not to be a commodity – but to not be afraid to take some bold steps and try to be great. And then I figured the market would kind of take care of me if that were to happen because people would notice you. And then, and then the market's not going to let someone who's great sit on, the bench. sit on the bench. I've never heard of that, but it's, it's true. Yeah. I mean, and, and most people, you know, it, it, it are afraid to take the steps necessary to be great. And, you know, the truth is, you know, I, I had nothing to lose. I, I had, you know, I, 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 I couldn't go home. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah, I had— yeah, we I had, talk about your old man said Yeah, you my, my, old, my old man told me it's, once you had a job, man, you're off the payroll, goodbye. So just go for it, you know, and that's sort of what we did. And so would you say it's accurate and it's like a lot of people wake up in a morning or in a day and say, yeah, you know what, I want to be great at whatever, whatever it is I'm doing— and I don't think anybody would hear or is, who's listening would listen to what you just said. Uh, your mentor told you, I've never heard it, but it, it just, the second you said it, it just, it, it rings so true that if you are great, the market won't let you sit on the bench. I think most people would be like, you know what, you're right. Like, yeah. Somebody will come calling, someone will recruit you. Even if something bad happens to you at your current position, like you will have come in contact with someone at some point who will say, I have to have that guy on my team. So my question is, is like, is it a fair statement that a lot of people would say, you're right. And a lot of people say, I want to be great. But the reason, as, as you said, which I agree, is there's such few, is it because it's so hard to put in the work over what really likely needs to be a long period of time, a period of years, not, not months, not days, to really become great at something. Like what prevents people? Let me ask this question in reverse. What prevents so many people from getting to that place you described, like they're going to be great at their profession. Therefore, the market will always take care of them. Well, I think part of it is, is could be work ethic, but I think another part of it is the willingness to take risk. You know, we talk about generational differences and, you know, my generation was actually much more risk-taking mm-hmm. than my kids' generation, you know, who are much more scheduled and scripted and and, and coddled to some extent. And that's okay. I mean, we're the parents. We, we, we created the, the, the generation and I'm proud of them. But, I, but, but in our generation, it, it wasn't that way. And so, the, so in real estate in particular, you have to be willing to take risk and be willing to fail. And it's okay to do that. 
And I, and I think part of it is just willing to get up and, and, and get out there and, and just take a swing and, and see what happens. Even if you're 26 years old or 25 years old and people say, well, you're a little young for that. People used to say to me all the time, they used to pat me on the head and they'd say, you know, you're a little young for that. You're a little young for that. I kind of took that as a compliment because that meant I was reaching for something that probably other people weren't. It means they shouldn't be able to do that. Yeah, and, 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 and other people weren't. See, because the thing you, you need to do, I think, is you have to make yourself obvious to the market, make yourself obvious to your company for the next great step that needs. If they need somebody to, 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 to work out a problem, if they need somebody to run a division, if they need someone to bail someone else out of, 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 of some conflict that's occurred, you want to be the, a go-to person. Well, they, you won't be that go-to person if they don't know who you are, and you got you to put yourself out there a little bit. And that means, and it happened to me plenty of times, I mean, failure is my middle name. It's, it, 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 it's happened. But it's okay because, again, you got to get out there and take a swing at someone, and you have that opportunity to be great and to get noticed. And if that happens, it never gets erased because once people notice you, they see that you're different than somebody else. Why should you be remembered? Because you accomplished this or this. That will create opportunities for you that it doesn't necessarily create for other people. Before we get into the opportunity at DDR, the first, you know, let's call it decade of your career, what, what was the craziest thing or craziest period of your life in that in terms of just pouring your energy and effort into this professional success? In many ways, catapulted you or, or created the momentum that led to everything else we're about to, to, to talk yeah, through? Yeah, I think probably the, there was a project that was a very important project to our company in New York. And then actually that's where I met Al Boscov. Boscov were a partner in the deal. And it was a mall in downtown Scranton, Pennsylvania called the Mall at Steamtown. I'll never forget it. And all the fancy people in our office didn't want to work on it because it was Scranton. And they didn't, Grant was more blue collar. It was blue collar, and they wanted to work on the fancier sites in Florida and Texas and wherever you know they wanted, warmer weather. They wanted to travel too. Yeah, they wanted the warmer That's weather right. and stuff like that. And, and, and Scranton is a tough town, and and it's a great town, by the way. And and I loved it. And what happened was, I was the person who stepped up and said, "You know what? I'll I'll I'll, I'll do this project." It was very complicated. It was a it was a tear down of three city blocks and. There was a lot of public funding we had to go to Washington and get and things of that nature. And when that project got finished and opened, it was noticed that that project got off the ground. And, and, and that was my, my project, not because I wanted it. It's because nobody else wanted it. And I said I'd take it. Was, it, was that – and you may have multiple moments throughout your career where you look back either at the completion or perhaps a, a couple of years after the completion of a period of time or a project where you say, wow, I, I can't believe I did that. That was, that was an interesting experience. You know, I, you know, I really felt that as I, as I was working on that project, there were many, many more reasons for it to fail than succeed. And I figured that you know, the way I would, I would be able to make a name for myself is to not fall into that trap of, well, this is what was expected and it wasn't, you know, Scranton and tenant interest was mild and things of that nature. And we pulled it off and we pulled it off and we got it built. And I think that was probably, that was probably the time when I really thought that I, I liked to build things. I really learned that, you know, impacting a city block and, 
and and the people in Scranton were so proud of that project, and and it was so successful, and for for so many years, I I really enjoyed giving something back, not just to the community, but giving something back to my my partners. When was, when was the last time you've been back? I was back there probably six or seven years, and unfortunately, like yeah, many of the malls, it's not. Yeah, it hasn't it hasn't done particularly well. Society's changed. Society's changed and stuff. Different. But it was. But the grand opening of that. Of there was that, no internet I, back then. There was no internet. There was no internet. And then, then, you know, the opening of that project was something special, and that was uh, probably was the biggest action. Probably the biggest stepping stone we, of my career. Would you say uh, earlier? I want to go back to something you said. Uh, you know, somebody said, "Hey, you're a little young for that," and it, you know, I, I think I said it's kind of like you shouldn't be able to do this. Would would you say one of your drivers, other than being great, was proving people wrong? No question. I made, it's still a driver? It's still a driver. Yeah, sure. I mean, it, I made a lot of decisions that people didn't agree with, and then you use that as motivation to prove them wrong. And there's no question about that. It's You know, you got to play with a chip on your shoulder a little bit. And yeah, yeah, who are you talking to? Yeah, no, <laughs> you, you do. You got to play with a chip on your shoulder mm-hmm. a little bit. And even if people aren't doubting you as much today as they were 10 years ago, you have to convince yourself that they actually dislike you more. Call that manufacture adversity. Yeah. Yeah, you do it. And that you, keeps So you keeps still you do that. I sure do. Because I don't think anybody really doubts you at this point. No, but, I but think in your, <laughs> But all that matters is what, you know, what what's in your head. Yeah. And I, and I, and I really do think, I really think that that's, that's a motivating factor for a lot of people. You if know, you want me to manufacture a story about some people doubting, I could do that for you. That'd be great. Yeah, I'd you know, appreciate actually, that. You know, it was a couple of weeks ago. I was with a group of people, and they were they were just generally disparaging you. But uh, anyway, I'll talk to you about that. I appreciate no, that. No, no, no. I appreciate that. No, manufactured story. No, I, I hear you. I hear you. The chip on the shoulder. The yeah. everybody thinks I can do that. You see these sports teams. I'll take like the Golden State Warriors. You know, over the last so whatever six seven years, the most successful NBA final NBA franchise and. They win a championship, and and right after the game, like everybody doubted us. You know, the mm-hmm. world didn't think we could do it. And you're sitting there, like, what do you mean everybody doubted you? Everyone, you've been the favorite since game one. Not one single bet in Vegas went against right. you. Like, but I think these high performing, you know, we we'll use athletes, right? High performing people is a mental part of like we're talking about mentality here today. And the mindsets behind what drives, in, in this case, these super athletes is like they convince themselves that nobody thinks they can do it. And it's like everyone thinks you can do it. But but in their heads, they 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 really believe, they get to a place mentally where they're like, no, like I'm going to prove everyone wrong. Even if, again, surface, everyone's like, no, I, we actually think you're going to win the championship. And And my question to you getting back to our conversation was it sounds like that's still something you do, right? You do, and 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 I think part of it is manufactured, but not all of it. You know, this is a very competitive business. You know, I have competitors, you have competitors, and 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 we know that, and we have people that are very happy for our success, and there are also people that are very happy for our failure, and 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 that, maybe not to your face, but not no, but we know they exist. Oh, yeah, yeah, they we know exist. we know they exist, and 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 there's only one way to counter that, right? And that is to be, is, and that is to be successful, and and it's like. Beat their ass. It's like I had a, it's like whenever, whenever I would have a, a particularly bad moment during a, a game in college, I'd come over the sidelines and my coach would pull me over and say, "Just do me a favor. Just go out and hit someone with an opposite color jersey, please." Yeah. You know, and that's it's sort simple of, but effective. But simple but effective, and that's sort of the way it is in business. Just go out there and hit someone with an opposite color jersey and see what happens. What What advice would you have for new people entering the workforce and just in general, or what you know? Let me. 
add a, a, a attack on question like what are the most common mistakes you you see people who are entering their professional careers i i think i think the most common mistake is the misnomer that you're going to like everything you do i think I, I think people come in with very very high expectations that their satisfaction level is going to be unusually high at an early point. And when it's not, they get, they get discouraged very, very quickly. Do you think that's being messaged and to them? I, I, I don't know. You know, because I, I, I've, I've seen an, we, a we, lot we, of that. We, we create these caricatures, these, you know, these stereotypical college professors, and I don't know if it's, it's that. It could be. I, I, I also think that people are, are sort of afraid to – Afraid to to lose, you know. They're afraid to be wrong. They want to. It's very. It's highly competitive now with everything from social media to, to even just chat groups with college friends and stuff. Everyone wants to do well. Your mistakes and, are public and forever and, now, and forever, and and all those things. And I think it, they're putting too much pressure on themselves. Just go to work, and like I said earlier, just go to work and be great. And if you actually can be great at something you don't like. Just think how fantastic you can be at something you love. Which eventually you will likely work your way in a position to totally. do something that very much aligns totally. with your, you know, they call it a passion, so enthusiasms, your loves. That's right. And I think and I think people shouldn't worry about the early stages of their career being in love with anything that they're doing. They should just make sure that they're creating the right work ethic, they're creating the right brand for themselves because we know we're all personal brands, yes. right? And we all have to, I mean, you know that better than anybody. I think, well, I think when we were growing up, it was called reputation. Yeah. And now it's, it's called a brand. Now right? it's called a brand, but it's very, very important and, and you want to be that go-to person. So I think the biggest mistake people have is their expectations for total professional satisfaction are too high, too early. And don't worry about it. You're going to be fine. Just go to work. And be terrific. Name something that you were not satisfied, that you didn't love to do earlier on, but you just said, hey, this is part of what I got to do. It is what it is. So I'll give you, I'll give you a good yeah, example. please. I'll give you a good example. Back in the old days, and I talk about like, you know, 88, 89, every, there was no internet. In fact, the fax machine was just like the big oh, yeah. thing, right? And the mail would come in every day and everything had to be coded and everything had to be filed. And one of the partners of the firm did all the coding and did all the file and did all the reading because he wanted to know everything that was going on at the firm. And he, when I came back from the construction site back to New York, he decided that would be a good job for me. So I would have a bag of mail mm. dumped on my desk every morning that I would have to open and I would have to code and bring to the file room for the file clerk to put into the file. And I hated it. Yeah, that sounds bad. It was horrible. I mean, because everything had a code. And that's every, the first everything. thing you do every day. Every single letter that came into the company mm. passed my desk. But, but the interesting point of that was I knew everything that say, was going yeah. on. I mean, I learned so much. I mean, I, I, I had done a good job. I, you know, I brought this project in. I, you know, we built this mall. I came back to New York for this big job and, and, you know, I get a bag of mail on my desk every morning. But I, but I, and I really thought that it was, you know, a, a grind to get that done. But then I realized, you know what, stop complaining and read everything. 
And by the way, some of the stuff I should not have read, right? There, there is some highly, highly privileged, privileged, yeah. inf- you know, yeah. confidential stuff in there that gave me a lot of leverage. Yeah. It, it just, it just taught me things. And then, I, and then when I saw something that was interesting, I can go into my boss's office and say, "By the way, this was in the mail today. What was this in reference to? How, what does this mean? How, how do you do this? Or whatever it was." So I, I really didn't like the job, but I was able to do, and I was, but I was really good at it because. Whenever someone had a question about information in the office, they started to come to me. After about three, four, five months, they realized that not only was I coding everything, I was actually reading everything. And that gave me great inside knowledge as to what was going on and what was happening. I tell people the best way to be indispensable is to be indispensable. Yeah. All right. Moving forward, you were named president and COO of DDR during a very tumultuous time in history. I think it was 2008. 2008, CEO in 2010. Yeah. yeah. And so 2008, the recession had begun. Mm. And so you step into this role. What, what's going through your head? I mean, for, well, first you move from New York to Cleveland, right? Beachwood? Well, I was in, yeah, I actually had moved from Boscovs to Cleveland to Beachwood, yeah. So that was in Pennsylvania. But I, I you know, it was, it was an interesting time. Mm-hmm. The stock price for the company had gone from $66 to $1.54. We were obviously headed into more than just a recession. Was and there was there a period of time where you you know it was so low that you're like I don't I don't know if we're going to get out of this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, there was used to be a, a running chart in the Wall Street Journal about the companies most likely to go bankrupt, and we were always high on the chart. I, I was a young pup in the industry, but I yeah. remember hearing water cooler talk. Oh, it's only a matter of time before. Yeah, D- developers diversify, right, right, and then eventually DDR. Yeah, there was the, we we were odds on favorite at that point because of our of, of our balance sheet and you know the stock price had crashed and and then the board decided to make a change at CEO and and you know it was it, it I I thought that there were things that we could do, but I will tell you that we we could not have gotten them done if it wasn't for some positive momentum in the market and some good relationships and some friends that really worked hard with us to get it done. I mean, the people that, not just my team at the time, which I changed because mm-hmm. there were, there were, there were people that, that we needed to, we had certain positions within the company we needed to upgrade and we did that. But I also felt that there were, there were market conditions that helped us become successful quicker than I thought was we that would, just, which was, that was nice. just It didn't feel like it at the time, but the tailwinds coming out 2010, then 11, 12, 13, everything started getting better. Things started to get better. And, 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 and our company was structured in a way that we were able to under-promise and over-deliver, basically. And that was something that was the opposite of what the company had done prior. So it was a, a, different, a different direction, and it was a different culture. And it worked very beneficial. It's, it's very humble for you to say. There were some t- some market tailwinds coming out of GFC, but at the time, DDR, you guys were primarily big box power. I remember I used to give out these golf balls, the Pro Pro V ones, I think, yeah. and it said "Power Centers are our fairway." Was that what it was? Is that, <laughs> was that you? All right. You know, this is why re- retail just got so banged up over the past fifteen years. Okay, you're coming out of GFC. Every product type's hammered. Every product type starts getting starts healing, in many ways, except retail because of yeah. online started coming. You know? yeah. and especially in the big box, that became a worry. But you guys, you guys, you you, you navig- navigated your way through it. Yeah, we navigated our way through it. We had we had 
real success from a total shareholder return perspective, which is which is good. It also helps to start at a very low base. Yeah, you know that <laughs> managing <laughs> expectations. Yeah, but at the same time, yeah. we we had we had good results, and 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 the company, the company did fine. It was it was a lot of hard work, by a lot of people through the crisis. You know, our biggest problem was you know our balance sheet, our balance sheet, which was, you repaired. Was, I think it was Moody's, S and P, Fitch. To, to consensus grade. investment grade. Yeah, we, yeah. Were, we were able to get that done, and and that, that was and a that, big thing. It was a big thing, and 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 really, what happens is when you're CEO of a public company in a situation like this, you're really not. It, you could be CEO of any company. The fact that real estate was just coincidental because you're nothing more than a capital raiser. You know, you, I never saw the real estate for and years. You, and you don't. You love capital raising, right? Yeah, it's my <laughs> least favorite. <laughs> my least favorite part of the yeah. of, of the job was going around because you're really begging for money to keep the company alive. And, and you know, there were there were hundreds and hundreds of employees that, that depended on it, and yeah. you know, municipalities and things of that nature. So you you went to work, but at the same time. It, it, it's not the glorious part of, mm-hmm. of running a real estate company from my perspective. You wanted in my to be core, I wanted to be an operator. An operator, developer. I wanted to be an operator. I didn't want to be a beggar. Let me push pause on the career and, and want to – I mean, you've, you, okay, so you're at Shopco, then Boscovs, then DDR. I mean, you're mm-hmm. just – you're rising up. You're the CEO of a publicly traded company. How old are you at this time? I was – Sorry uh, to age you here. But. Yeah, no, that's okay. I was – it started, I think I was 47, 46, 47. Yeah, which is... As CEO? Yeah, and especially 46, at that time, young yeah. for, for that position. So I want to push pause on the professional part and talk about family. Like, how did family and, and, and getting married and building a family fit into a very successful but likely a very demanding career trajectory? Well, I, you know, family obviously has a huge role in everything that I've done, and my wife Ellie and my and my two kids have been the inspiration of my life. And I was not willing to sacrifice family for business, but I also was willing to work. And I always knew that would be the case. By the way, I mean, I grew up in, 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 with with great mom and great dad and, and a great family. And I wanted something like that. But I, and the only way you can really do that is to control your own schedule. So one of the one of the motivating factors for me earlier in my career was working as hard as I can so I could rise it to the level where, you know, I wasn't punching a clock and I could I could leave and go to a game. I can go to my daughter's play. And you, you knew that. And again, I don't want to put words in your mouth. So you tell me if I'm if I'm not hearing you correctly. You knew that at the earlier in your career when you didn't have those commitments, yes. specifically to children. And going to games and plays and all that. Because your spouse, you could do dinner on a Friday night, right? right? But with kids, you knew, you said, hey, I don't have that. So now is the time to basically, you know, burn the candle at both ends. It was. And and I because I wanted to be able to control my own schedule. I I, I, I don't like to think of myself as as a control freak in any way, but I do I do like to to have the freedom to be able to walk out of the office and go to my son's game and or my daughter's play, and 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 not and, ask for permission and not ask for permission and not have anyone ask me where I'm going. So I was very fortunate enough to, to 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 work successfully enough early in my career to get to a point where I could actually navigate the work life balance, however you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. So you are for work life balance. Nah, you know it. it, it like it's personal. Yeah. You know, that the thing about work life balance is that people talk about it as if as if it's a uniform thing and it's not. Work life balance is a very individualized perspective for each person and 
you know, many people probably would have thought that my career was not an appropriate work-life balance, but it worked for me and it worked for my family and it worked okay. And, and there are other people who have enormous, you know, pride in their work-life balance and, and I would have napped through that. I mean, it just – You would you would have It, it wouldn't have worked. I would have been unhappy and I would have felt that, it, that I was leaving too much on the table and I should get back to work. So I think work-life balance, while it's important – I think it's completely individual and it's up to the, the other person and sh no one should be judged by I mean, how they decide to pursue that work-life balance. Yeah, a longer conversation, so we don't have to dive in. I think that's, this is my opinion, my opinion alone. That's one of the challenges is that there are very driven young men and women entering the workforce, but there is a segment of the population that very much promotes, evangelizes the work-life balance concept, and that's what brings them happiness. And I think you and I would agree if that's what brings them happiness and that's satisfying, that brings them fulfillment, God bless and Godspeed. Like you said, it would make you unhappy. It, it, there wouldn't be fulfillment. You'd have a lot left on the table. And But in today's day and age, that, that half for the room is projecting to the other half that actually wants to be driven and wants to accomplish and, you know, just simply put wants to get into a point, a place where they can control their own schedule and, uh, you know, kind of wrapped in, into, in a case of judgment saying, oh, like, so that's what you want? Well, that's, that's not good. Yeah. And I, and I think there's, there's a difference between true personal work-life balance and those people who, who candidly want to work less and get paid more under the guise of work-life yeah, balance. Yeah, because sometimes... That, that, and that might be right for yeah. somebody, and that's fine, but they can't do that here. You know, that's... Then this is not the culture for them. Sometimes that's when, when someone steps down from a role, we, we spoke about this earlier, they say, hey, you know, I'm, one of the reasons is work-life balance. It's like, it's effectively saying, hey, I want to work less and get paid the same, if not more. Or I'm working too and hard. If, yeah. You know, we had... We had an employee that worked, we did a search for an analyst and, and, and this gentleman came and worked for us and he was with us a week and quit. And he didn't talk to me, but he, he talked to his direct supervisor and I said, well, how, what happened? He said, he said he was working too hard. I said, you know what? Good for him. Yeah. You know, that's uh, that, good for him because he, everyone, everyone's entitled to be happy. Yes. And and they and if, and and it's not right. So not every culture is right for those people. And and I think the quicker you realize that, the better you are, because you should go find your place. It just may not be working for Matthews or Raider Hill, for that matter. You know, it, 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 it may probably it, not. no, it may not. I mean, it, it, but yeah, but again, but there's no judgment. There's no it's judgment. Eight. No, no, no yeah. judgment at God all. Bless, God bless. You're at DDR. You're running this public company completely turned it around with the help of great teammates, okay, with the help of a, of a great markets, no doubt. But you were, you were the captain of the ship. You got it back to consensus investment grade. It's 2014. You left 2015. Was that, was that, is it just as simple if I'm reading into that? It's like, hey, mission accomplished. Like, I'm going to go start a new challenge. That's part of it. Part of it was mission accomplished. Part of it, like I said, it was a CEO public company that had to raise, you know, about mm. $14 billion to survive, you know, was a lot. And the question is, what's next? You know, and, and the, like I said before, I'm a better, better coach than I am cheerleader. And even though the company had been done well and we got to the certain point, I think we, 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 we all realized that the, the path ahead was going to be more maintenance than it was building, and, and it was time, time to go. And, and by the way, it was time to go for, from everyone's perspective. I think 
you know, a little bit of me can go a long way. And, and, and I think the company was happy to see me go, and I was happy to move on and do other things and start new things because that was a grind. I mean, that, mm-hmm. that, I was there 16 years, and that last five years as, as CEO is a grind to get the company back to where it was. And I think it was time for somebody else to take the rein. I had done all I could do. Yeah, I was trying to understand your, the mindset behind, like, you know, mission accomplished yeah. and – you know, then you go and you start this this new thing. Well, I, there is a couple of spots in between. I'll touch on it a second. Go I'll go back. I want to share with the share with the audience, share with the listeners. We, we, you, I'd heard this story before you had shared it, but it's great. I love it because I can I can visualize you and the crew sitting in that little lobby. You, so your office in Beachwood because I've been there. Yeah, yeah. I always came bearing gifts. You know, it's a there's your office and there's this little little waiting area, little sitting table, room. little sitting room. There yeah. you go. The company's, you know, it's 2009, 10, let's call it. You're, you're, you're CEO. It's not going well. Nope. What, how did you tra- change strategy? You know where I'm leading <laughs> here. T- talk to us about these really, really important, serious executive meetings. Well, what happened, really, people were working like crazy. And the market was not moving. And, you know, the, the stock price had come down and it was staying down. And it was discouraging. And you know how each year on the holiday, people would bring you gifts and they'd bring you wine and stuff like that, like yourself. I called the senior team into the sitting room off my office and I said to them at the time, I said, ladies and gentlemen, obviously running this company sober is not working. Let's have some wine. (laughs) And we opened up the wine and with Dixie Cups and we, we were eating, we were drinking, you know, the spectacular first growth Bordeaux wines in, in, in coffee cups. And, on, on Fridays, and right? On a, on a, well, that was a Friday. And then actually the following week, the stock started to go up. It started you, to go you up. Break so, that tradition. so you can't break the tradition. So every Friday, we would sit in that room and have some wine. And it ended up going, company went on a pretty good run. It did. It yeah. did. That's yeah. funny. I, it, you know, it's funny when you're in those times, those really dark, challenging times. Yeah. It's it doesn't it doesn't feel like it, but but you look back and I know when you tell me that story, it's like you always smile. And I, I got to imagine some of the other guys, guys I know, who are in those rooms with you, it probably was a special time. Well, you need to you, you need to calm things down. You know, people panic, it, it, and and for good reason. You know, you had a stock price that had, had gone down to almost zero. And even though it was going up a little bit, it was coming down just as much as and, going. And so, and, you know, I'll tell you, you, you had a lot of white-collar professionals at DDR yeah, yeah. in a city, a, a city very close to my heart, Cleveland, Ohio, where I very, very much so was raised there. But uh, if DDR goes down, the, there's not a lot of industry there in, in large retail operations where they can just go and get another job, not to mention at that time. So it likely would be major, a major disruption. So that entire element, that the environment was likely pervasive throughout the company for a year or two. Yeah. We're just people every day is like, is, is my professional life going to end? And then they're looking at you, the leader, it's a, it's a high stress environment and, and maybe not with the, you know, the 300 or so employees, but with at least your leadership team, you said, let's break out some Dixie cup and let's, let's, let's relax a little bit. And I remember very clearly it became, it did become a habit. I mean, we, we did it because we're superstitious and, you know, on, it, fri- yes. on Fridays <laughs> we, we would, we would sit down after hours and have, have, have some wine. And I remember, I remember one of our, our board members said to me, you know, I don't think that's a good idea. 
And I said, I'm sorry you feel that way, but we're going to continue to do well, it because it's of, pretty uh, important. Drinking on the job. CEO yeah, Dan Horowitz, drinking yeah. on the job. Well, but it was important because and, – and, and we talked a lot of business. You know, you bring sure, everyone in. How course, was your yeah. week? What's new? What's going on? Let's, let's, let's talk about this together. The camaraderie that resulted from that was very important for the company. In vino veritas, right? In wine, there's truth. Yeah. Uh, so it's 2015. It's golden parachute. Right off in the sunset, you're on the aircraft carrier. It says mission accomplished. Okay. <laughs> what happens next? It's sort of interesting. As I was leaving the company, I had what was a separation agreement that didn't prevent me from recruiting people from the company. And there was an article in the Wall Street Journal that was incorrect, by the way, but it was an article that said that I was a candidate for the CEO of another job in the REIT space, which was not true. But nevertheless, they printed it, and they never called me for comment. So it was what it was. And the then senior executive of the company, because they had not replaced me yet, they were still doing the search, called me and said, you know, the board's concerned that you're going to be leaving, and you could actually take a lot of people. So this wasn't a contentious situation. So they said, would you, would you give us at least like a six-month non-compete or a non-poaching clause or something like that. Because really what had happened was my contract had expired, so there was no... So I said, I would do that, but I do actually want to poach one person. And that's my partner, Joe Tishar. So they, so I agreed to give them time that I wouldn't take anyone else as long as they let me take a shot at, at, at getting Joe to come with me to New York to start this company. And that, Joe was... What, he, he had 28 at the time? 27, 28, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and he, and, and you know, we had hired Joe out of college and he went through our management training program and he became, then he became my chief of staff during the recession and when no one knew what a chief, chief of staff was. And, and he helped you with your congressional testimony. He wrote my congressional testimony. That's how he, which, that's I, how he, which by the way, was an invitation, not a subpoena. <laughs> just <laughs> very to, important. Just for the record. Just for the record. Yeah. And, and he, he, he wrote my congressional testimony and did a spectacular job. And that's how I made him chief of staff. And then he ultimately rose to be head of corporate operations and then left DDR very shortly after I did and, and helped me form Raider Hill. So you started Raider Hill, but then... I, and I was around for this because I was at the time actively trading deals for well, it used to be Central then the, to Bricksmore. Bricksmore. Bricksmore had, if I remember correct, some accounting irregularity, and uh, there was a change at the top, and you stepped in. Yeah, we were we were asked. So the the largest owner of, of shares at, at at Bricksmore was at the time Blackstone, Blackstone and yeah. and when that happened, they requested that. I come in as an interim CEO to try to stabilize mm-hmm. the situation and then and then find the new management team as well. So Joe and I did that for in 2016. So it was a six month interim period. I you know I wasn't I, I when I left the public markets I I was I had left the par- public markets. I wasn't going back. It wasn't something you were angling. No, yeah. no, and I and I thought that was important too because yeah. I didn't want the market to think that I was a candidate for the job because it would have impacted the the the. the the potential talent that would be interested in it. So so we made it very clear that I was not going to stay at Bricksmore as the CEO. I was just there in, on an interim basis. We went out and were just extraordinarily lucky to find Jim Taylor, yeah. who's who's just an extraordinary CEO and has done a great job at Bricksmore. And I'm still on the board and 
very proud of that company and proud of everything that they've done. I, I, I love Jim, a good friend of mine, an even closer friend of mine. I just wanted to sh you to share the story. Brian Finnegan, Executive Vice President and Chief Revenue Officer at Bricksmore. Mm. Tell Tell, tell us the story. It was something when you first got to Bricksmore, Finnegan was in his office. Do you, do you remember the story? No? I have a lot of Brian Finnegan stories. So I got to something <laughs> like, I don't know if it was a ping pong or if it was a oh, dress code. Well, Brian did have issues with the dress code. There's no question about it. He had some <laughs> of the worst sport codes. But we did. Guy, there, yeah. there, there, there was a situation where I was walking down the hall and one of the leasing people and, and the general counsel were playing ping pong. And, and I had, I'm not sort of a ping pong foosball guy in yeah. the office. And I walked by and then I wasn't quite sure what I saw. So I kind of walked back and I looked and I said to those guys, what are you doing? And they're like, we're playing ping pong. We're taking a break in the middle of the day. I was like, taking a break? I said, are you... Are we 100% leased? I mean, is every, is every document, every lease out to every tenant that wants to lease space from us? They're like, no, but we like to, you know, take a break in the middle of the day. I said, guys, you sit at a desk and you talk on the phone all day. You're not laying brick. It's not like you have to take yeah. a break and hydrate, <laughs> you know? Let's, let's, let's not play ping pong and let's get back to work. That's I, I, I love I, that story. And if you hear Finnegan, he does a good impression of you, like... Oh. Guys, come on. A, a buddy of ours, uh, this is where I first heard it, so I'll give him credit, Luke Petherbridge, who's the CEO of Link Logistics, Blackstone's industrial platform. He he told me once that the culture of a company is a shadow of the CEO, right? And and I that that story at Bricksmore, again, you were only there four or five months, so yeah. you can imagine what, you know, the culture of a company you, you run. But how would you describe the culture of DDR when you were there or the culture of Raider Hill and 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 ultimately the culture, ideally where you're going to get it to of an organization you're running? Well, I'd like to think that the culture is collaborative and fair, but not particularly easy. I mean, I think, I think it's direct. I think people know where they stand and we celebrate their successes and we discuss failures very seriously. And I think that's important from a culture perspective. I, I, I don't think it's, you necessarily need to have the same culture and the same management style for every employee, right? You have to make sure that you, you understand, you know, what, what, what motivates your players at, at the right time and how to, how to get to them. But at the same time, I, I think you have to be fair with people. And, and, that, and, and that doesn't, again, it doesn't mean we'll always agree and it doesn't mean it's, you know, an easy place to, to, to work, but you want people to know that you, where they stand, where you stand, where the company stands, we're very open, very honest, and very and very collaborative, and I think that's important. But but at the end of the day, the company has to be a meritocracy. It just it just must because otherwise it destroys the culture when you when your really good people see average people excel for some reason that is unbeknownst to anybody. You can't you just can't have that. You can't have workarounds. Subjective. Everyone's gonna, everyone's got to carry their weight. Everyone has to has to be responsible for their own performance, quite frankly. And, and I think it's important that they get the feedback and the mentorship to help them be successful. I mean, my goal, I, I want to see everyone be enormously successful. I think I get a huge kick out of people who come in and they came from someplace where they maybe even weren't that successful 
and they find enormous success in our organization, I feel really good about that. I feel I think that's a lot of fun. That's part of the fun is helping people yeah. build their career. Yeah. And not just have a job, but a real career. Yeah, it's. I'll speak for myself. It's fulfilling when you. I mean, it's a feeling. So I'll say when you feel like you put someone in a position to be successful, because at the end of the day, they had to do it. Yeah. Or, or that you had a hand in providing an opportunity that they then seized. Yeah, I think that's right. And 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 the good people will know how to seize it, and not everyone will, and that's okay. You, I think you just you just said, hey, you know, for someone to be accountable to their results or, or or you know the quality of their work, was there ever a time in your career, and, and we see this a lot, but you, was there ever a time in your career where, where, and it's okay to admit, you know, no judgment, like where maybe you had a, a victim mentality, like hey, it's you know somebody's doing this to me or this isn't my fault, like wherever times where you felt like you entered that valley of despair where you're just like. I've been set up. It's a bad situation. Yeah. I had plenty of those situations. And, and particularly when I was younger, you, 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 you tend sometimes to think that, that people aren't giving you a chance or you took the hit for something that wasn't really your hit. It was a senior manager's hit, but they, they didn't have the, the honesty to, 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 to really explain what went on. I did, I, did, I did feel that at times in my career. I did also, I've also seen it occur. And, and by the way, as you evaluate as your CEO and you see some of your managers do that to subordinates, that's a very poor reflection on that manager mm-hmm. and something that you have to address as a, as a CEO. But I, I do think there's, we all have situations like that, particularly if you're a rising young person. You know, people, people are afraid of you. You know, you, you, you are, number one, you're cheap labor in most cases. And number two, you, you may very well replace somebody who is not as good as you. And so it's a threat. And, and you are a threat. I mean, I, I'll never forget, I, I was talking to a, a businessman early in my career, and he told me, he said, make sure. He says, you'd only take a job based on access. He said, because you never want some middle manager who's scared of you to deflect your progress and deflect your performance from the people who can make a decision that can change your life. So direct access to the decision. Have direct access. Always, always, always have access to the people that can make a difference in your life. And he said that because in business, it's not uncommon for, for, for people to see others as a threat and then try to hold them back a little bit. And you have to make sure that that doesn't happen to you. And is that something that, you know, early in your career, you may have felt that was happening or you may have had that mindset, again, not victim mentality of like somebody's doing something to me. Is that something that went away with you? Is that something you kind of coached yourself out of where you have agency over your life? In you know, it, 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 it's really all goes back to just going back to work. You know, you, 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 have, you can have that victim mentality, but you can have it for about five minutes and then no one really cares. And if you feel like you're the victim, that's very nice. Get over it and get back to work. Because if you then go back to work and you just outperform, you just do better than everyone else, again, you will not be on the bench. You know, nobody, nobody gets rewarded by keeping their best players on the bench. And so it, it, it's motivation. It's motivation to go back out there and, and, and get back to work. So you can say, you know what, I got, you know, I got screwed on this or this happened to me or this is something that is, 
isn't fair or, or, or this guy did this. You know what? You have about five minutes of that. I feel sorry for you. I feel sorry for myself. We all feel sorry for me. That's great. Now go back to work. Back to work. And win. Life's not fair. And win. And win. That's important. What advice would you have for people? Because I'm about to ask you about Raider Hill starting a company, being mm -hmm. a founder, number one, why, number two, the difference of being a founder versus stepping in as CEO. But before I do that, it's my opinion, there's actually a lot of people who have their toes on the edge and they're, you know, at the cliff and, and, and using the metaphor of jump, but they, they want to start a company or they want to leave their current position and go for that big promotion or go, go to another company that, that is a, it's a much bigger opportunity or start a new career. Just somebody who's on the edge and is just waiting and waiting and waiting. And, and I don't know if it's, they, they just haven't found the courage yet, or they're paralyzed by the fear of not, of, of, of that decision, not working out long-term. You've made some big decisions. Obviously, you, you ended up starting your own company. What advice would you have for people who are listening, who just, they just need, they need that, that push? Well, I think one thing that's very important, and, and, and I just say this because it's my, just my personal experience, is that I, I, I probably would not have done it if I didn't get Joe to come with me because I, I, it's fun when you do it with a partner. It's lonely when you do it alone. And I, for me, building something and having a teammate. You're a team sport player. Yeah, and having a teammate and then going out and building a team and then trying to do that that was all kind of fun, coming up with a strategy and a playbook and going out and just doing those things, none of which, by the way, worked. Nothing is – anything that we strategized about is not exactly how it goes, but that's okay. That's the thought that counts. But I, I would I, – if, if you can, because you'll have those times that are very difficult and they can be extremely lonely. But if you have a partner that's sort of in there swinging with you – it's a, it's, a little, it's a little easier, and you also feel a greater sense of obligation to each other, and I think that's important. And I, I, for me, that was incredibly important. I don't know if I would have started the company if it was just me and, 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 and me alone. What if, what if um, and I'm going to lead you here, is your mentality is one of to be, the, to be, the, to be great, proving people wrong, setting your own schedule, just a very driven person. I, you know, I always summarize high achievers. What, what, how important is it? I'll give you a softball here. How important is it to have a partner who is very aligned from a mentality perspective and, and really ultimately commitment to perspective and how dangerous is it to say, Hey, I'm going to go partner up with someone, whether it's start a business or you're, you're I'll use your broker. I'm going to go, you know, this broker is going to be my deal partner if there isn't alignment? Well, you can't do it if there's not can't alignment. You can't do it at all. In fact, it, you're better off not starting the company because the aggravation that will, will result is far, far worse than any of the success you could achieve. It, it, it just doesn't work. I mean, I've seen it for almost 40 years. Like I said, in this business, you see partnerships that just don't work where partners don't get along. And it's, it's a terrible, terrible thing. I mean, that's why that's why it, it's hard. It's hard, but you got to find somebody who you you know you completely trust and 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 culturally you have alignment with, and in many ways just makes you better. You know, you should make your partner better, and your partner should make you better. And if that if that's the right if that works, that will make you different. 
that that can make you special and that could lead to success. If you are, you know, if it's a partnership of convenience, it's probably not going to end well. That's probably not going to end well. And and so I feel very fortunate, but I also understand how difficult it is for people to take that leap. But I wouldn't I would I would rather be it alone than be with someone who is not a a compatible partner but a convenient partner. And that's that's the, there's a very big difference. What and this gets to a compatible partner, but what what in your experience, I mean you've been doing this for 40 years, I think you said. What are the common traits or attributes of, of successful people that you've encountered career? And we could just ask that question of what are the the traits or attributes of people who would make a great partner for you? Well, I think I think first of all, communication skill is absolutely critical. I, I don't know how else to what do you, put so that. what do you mean? Do you mean that how candid they are in feedback? Is that is that you I, know, writing style? Like Well, no, I, I just think I just think candid directness mm-hmm. uh, is very, very important. You really you can't afford when you start your own company, you really can't afford to make a lot of mistakes. So you have to understand what's going on all the time and there has to be open and honest communication on a regular basis. You can't really have open and honest communication with somebody you don't like very much, right? You have to really like spending a lot of time with that person. Whether it's, whether it's in the office, whether it's lunches, whether it's dinners, whatever it has to be, it's traveling, you have to really, really respect that person's intellect. You have to respect their opinion and, and, and you have to respect their ethic, which is absolutely critical to, to, to forming the culture of a company, just the business ethic you want to convey. So I, from, from my perspective, I, I think that finding that person is not easy. I mean, it's really, really hard. And, and I have experienced a, a lot of situations where you see and you know that a partnership isn't isn't going to work but this particular case i really felt confident that i could move on from what i was doing go into what we're doing now with a partner that was completely aligned and quite frankly had skills that i didn't have and hopefully i have skills that he doesn't have and then we make each other better he does have hair he does have hair. It's great hair. Yeah. No, it's we 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 spoke earlier. We touched on briefly, but I actually want to take this opportunity to dive into. And these are my words. You correct me if I'm wrong. Like very much a mentor to your partner Joe. And now, earlier on in, in terms of a DDR, and now you guys are true partners. But how important is it to have a mentor in this business, or was it for you early in your career? And what what advice would you have for those who who maybe they don't have a mentor? Well, I think mentorship is the quintessential element to success. There you go. I mean, it just is. It, it, the, to me, there is no chance for some strange reason certain individuals took me under their wing and taught me this business. They taught me how to manage. They taught me the technical side of the business, but they also taught, t- taught me other sides of the business, including running companies. And I, I don't know why they did it. I'm enormously grateful that they did, and I work every day to make them proud. And when I think of Arnold Praver and I think of Albert Boscov, both of whom have, have now passed, and I think of the time that they spent working on me, because I was I was a, a you know a rough cut, an uncut gem, an uncut gem for sure. But but I would just say it was it was a, a gift that was given to me that far exceeded anything else they could have given me monetarily or otherwise. And if you're able to find someone that you 
respect and admire and they're willing to give you their time and mentor, I would tell any young person, just grab it. And hang on. Just grab it and hang on. I mean, it's just, it's just very, very important because most successful people like to watch other people become successful. And they like to help them do that. It's not it, – it, it, you don't really want to work for someone who's only in it for themselves. You know, I, I, I tell people all the time, if you go – I talk to a lot of college kids and, and they go for interviews. And, and if a company doesn't ask you, you know, what you're interested in and why, that means they don't care. Right? If you go into an interview and you just get the scripted interview, you know, what's the price of gold today kind of thing? What's the tenure doing, et cetera, et cetera? They don't care about you. You're just they they don't care about you. You're, and you're going to work 90 hours a week to make someone else rich. The question is you want to go work someplace where someone says, what makes you tick? What's going on? And then if it's a match, you know that company actually cares enough about you to invest in your success. And with that will come mentorship. But if you if you if if the company doesn't ask you those questions, if you're just if you're just, you know, thirty of of, of, of four thousand people they brought in to, to interview and you you're one of the lucky thirty that made this year's intern class, that's that it might look good on a business card, but it's not gonna it's not gonna make you happy. The key is the key is finding somebody who, who cares about you, but you have to show them that you're worthy of their mentorship. You're worthy of their time. Mm -hmm. And you have to give them the work. You have to give them the time. You have to give them the trust. You know, you, I can't tell you how many times I was involved in situations where I was sitting in the room thinking to myself, I really shouldn't be here. Mm -hmm. I really shouldn't be listening to this conversation. When I was 22, 23, 24 years old, even later, and say to myself, this is, this is not where I should be sitting at this stage of my career. Why am I in this room? But, you know, that was part of it. That was all part of the trust that people had in having me in the room. And I think you have to be worthy of that trust. And if you are, and then people are willing to give of themselves to you, and you're willing to give of yourself to them, it's going to make for a terrific career, a terrific career. Now, is that, do you, let me just take Raider Hill, for example, if there's, you know, let's just say 20 people out on the floor and... Do you go and seek out a specific person to mentor based on their day-to-day -day behaviors and commitments? Or is that something people have to ask you and then you kind of wait and see to determine if it's worth your time? Well, first of all, you know, you, you do it for the, for the people who are your highest performers and the people that you, you want. You got to earn it, right? Yeah. You got to earn, sure. earn the time. But it's interesting because you can mentor more than one person at a time. And, and if you look at, at, at a group of, of, of analysts at any given time, some of them do some things extremely well and are just short here or there. And it really helps them to talk about it and to, and to spend time with them. And everyone, you've got to push different buttons for, for, for different people. But I will typically, where, where, where I will try to gravitate is to someone who I think has extraordinary talent, probably doesn't believe in themselves as much as I do, and we need to get them over that hump. You know, for whatever reason, they're probably not thinking of themselves or their work product isn't quite reflective as what it could be, even though they, they have enormous talent. And I remember early in, in, in Joe's career, you know, he would say to me all the time, 
you know, I'm really not qualified for this or not this. And I said, someday you'll have as much confidence in you as I do. As I do. Yeah. And that's, and that's the important thing because when you've been around a long time, you, could, you, can, you can see it. I mean, you can pick it out. You know who's going to be outstanding and, and, and who's going to be good. And by the way, not everyone can be great. Not everyone can be great. That's why, that's why there's a differentiation. That's why people are different. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's why people do that. That's what makes baseball, yes. right? Yes. But, but at the same time— And football. And football. <laughs> but at the same time, certain people, it's fun to see them, and, and, and maybe they don't come from a background or maybe they haven't been given the opportunity. It's great to be able to lift them up and see them go to the next level. So at Raider Hill, you're not just sitting around mentoring people. You are leading no. this company. You guys are growing. You're super active. Walk the walk the audience through Raider Hill, the company. What does it look like? What do you guys do? That's a good that's a good question. I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out. I'm trying to figure out what I want to do when I grow up. Raider Hill is 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 it started pretty much as a retail only advisory business for institutional capital. And then when we first started the company, we had one client, it happened to be Blackstone, so it's a spectacular client, but wonderful people that, that were able to support our efforts and we were hopefully able to support their efforts and they're still, still a terrific client and, and very important to us. But, I, but I, we were primarily working on the retail side because the retail business was in turmoil. You know, if you all remember the retail Armageddon and the fact that it was going away, and we didn't really believe that to be the true truth. We thought there were opportunities out there. We didn't think everything was great. We thought that you had to be careful. So we were able to advise institutional capital on their retail investments. So we got involved in a lot of different things, and, and, that's, and, then, and then what happens is the, the, the phone starts to ring a little bit, right? And other people call you up and say, hey, look, I have this situation. Can you help me with it? And where we could, we'd say yes, and where we couldn't, we'd say no. And so we ended up with a, a, a pretty good size advisory side of the business where we would only take on clients where there are obviously no conflicts and institutional capital who had invested in, in retail. Most recently, we've gotten a little bit more involved in office because office is starting to look and feel a little bit like retail did in the, yeah. you know, when, when in, in the 2016, 17, when people were, were concerned that the Amazon... The guys like, hey, where are those retail guys? They've been dealing with problems for 15 years. Yeah, we deal Bring with problems all the time. Yeah, no, we, uh, we, it, the retail business is very, very consistent. We're either in a massive recovery or a massive recession. We're never just okay. <laughs> no. Where it's never, you know, when people say, how's oh, business? Yeah. It's never just fine. Right, we're either we're either doing really really well, or the bottom's falling I'm out. I'm gonna have some I'm gonna have some multifamily so. guys on here in a couple of weeks, and they, they're gonna be like, I, I don't I don't I don't know what's happening. I mean, like <laughs> values are going down. I I've never seen this. I didn't yeah. know that could happen. It's like, yeah, welcome to yeah. the club. Vacancies and we're a rent concession. Like, oh yeah, yeah yeah. It's yeah. Real, real estate. Yeah, that's well, that's retail. Like like where uh, does the name Raider Hill come from? Oh, so Raider. I've been meaning to ask you this for like eight years. Every time I see so I many years ago, it sounds scary. I, well, well, it's not. Uh, many years ago, I actually bought a, a housing development outside of the campus of Colgate, and there were a bunch of houses on there. And people who bought the houses were coaches and alumni mm-hmm. and parents and stuff like that. And and so people just started to refer to it as Raider Hill. So we needed a New York LLC when we started the company, and I had one. 
because we had this, I had this housing oh, development yeah. thing, and people call it Raider Hill because it's you know the Colgate Raiders. I thought it was a play like corporate Raiders. No, or no, no, it had nothing to do with it. It had to do with a little housing project in Hamilton, New York, that that I I, I made up an LLC years ago. That's so when wild. someone said you need a New York LLC, I you know I didn't want to spend fifty dollars to do another one, so I just used the one I had. Well, when you're a startup business, you don't have a fourteen billion of capital that you raise. Huh? Speaking of starting a business, I wrote I wrote this down. I, I was, I'm fascinated to learn, or to listen, I should say, and to learn. Is what what are the differences for you? What have you? What has your experience been? And what lessons have you learned being a founder, a founder of a company versus stepping into companies that had already existed that I don't want to say well-oiled, but there's infrastructure mm-hmm. as opposed to Raider Hill. It's you and Joe in a, in a Regis. Well, there's, there's, first of all, there's a lot more risk, you know, what, what do you, I, so I, I, I know, but like, what yeah, do you mean by that? Well, I mean, there's a, there's, there's a good chance you don't get paid, you know, as bad as things were at, at during the great financial crisis at, at DDR or as bad as things were, when there were some financial, some accounting issues at Bricksmore and stuff like that, there was really no risk that you weren't going to get paid. Other than losing and, your and job, maybe. I mean, but you, you got your check every. You got your check every every two weeks or whatever it was. I mean, you, there was an enormous stability in in, in if there, in, in getting paid. I feel like <laughs> Just, DDR. It was almost like the risk was you might not make as much as you want, but you're still going to get paid. You're going to get paid. Okay. Yeah, you're going to get paid. And, and when and, you're a founder. But when you're a founder, if you the only first of all, you're paying yourself to some extent, yeah, right? Assuming I mean, you're yeah, not raising capital. Yet. Right. You're you're paying yourself, and then and and, then, and, and if you're raising capital, you got a boss. So would look, you you answer to someone else? Yeah. So yeah. even though you're a founder, it's a different thing. That's a, that's a different thing, and we haven't. You know, we've we've raised some capital, with just just friends and family capital, because because you didn't call me. Right? Yeah. Next one. Next one. Yes. <laughs> but, so that's seed. Then I'd be Series A. I'm in. It's it. I'm that's in. Right. All right. No, I I meant yeah. So you're a founder. But that's the diff- The real difference is, you know, when you when you pay the phone bill, you actually pay the phone bill. Yeah. You look you, at the phone. You know, bill. you pay the phone bill. I mean, you pay yeah, the rent. Yeah. You write a check. You put your hand in your pocket and you pay it. So that's that's the biggest change for me because mm-hmm. I've never worked for myself before. I I came through. You could argue sort of the corporate structure, even though there were some private companies and some public companies. There there was never there was never. I mean, I I don't know how my phone bill at the office ever got paid before. Yeah. But interestingly enough, at Raider Hill. When we started the company, I mean, this is actually before Joe had left DDR and came in. They shut off our phones because I just didn't pay the bill, and I didn't, you know. And it's not because I got the bill and I didn't pay. It's just that I just I didn't even think to pay the bill. It's never you been know? part of your. It's never been part. Of, I, I don't process. know. I don't. Yeah, I don't know how the bills got paid from yeah. that perspective. So, so founding, finding a comp, found, being a founder, you know, is all those different things, and and the risk is much greater personally. Because you also have enormous brand risk, reputational risk. If you're going to start your own company, you, you don't want to lose. And if you bring, bring on clients, people that are extraordinarily smart and, 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 and knowledgeable about things that you don't know about and things that you want to learn from them just as much as they want to learn from you. And it's got to be one of those good relationships because otherwise you'll fail. You know, your clients need to be sticky clients. You can't, you can't be one and done because you didn't do a good job. The way, that, the way to do well is to have clients that stay with you time and time 
So you have to perform at a very high level. If you don't, it is a blemish on your personal reputation. And that is something that you work 35 years to build up or 40, 30 years to build up. And, you know, we're now, I guess, in our 10th year at Raider Hill. And it, it took a long time to build a reputation to get someone to pick up the phone to call you. And I didn't know that they would, by the way. I will tell you the biggest concern I had, my, my, my sleepless nights were the people only called me because I was CEO of a big public company. Sure. And then all of a sudden you leave and you're sitting in a Regis office and I don't know if they're going to call me. I don't, I don't even, you have no and idea. And a lot of people may not even start the venture because ignorance is bliss. It's like, I don't even want to start a company. I don't think financially you needed to. So it's, it's why even put myself or subject myself to knowing whether I actually had real relationships or they just called me because I'm the CEO of DDR. That's right. And, and, and by the way, there are plenty of people who didn't call. Right there, and you keep and, a kill list. But there were a lot of people. But there were a lot of people. <laughs> I that know did. you did. I know you got the kill list. But, no, but you, there, got it, you got it up on your wall. I said, you know, a lot of people wouldn't do what you did. Yeah. And, and yes, they would like to be a founder and know what that's like, mm-hmm. and they'd like to. I mean, if there's a lot of enterprise value, Raider Hill make even more money. But people who've accomplished what you had accomplished by the end of your time at DDR and Bricksmore, for that matter, and all the board positions, but and respectfully had the financial. You were in the financial place you were at where, you know, you don't have to work. Let's just put that lightly. They wouldn't have done it because of, eh, they don't want to know. They don't want to know how good are they really, who's going to call, who's not going to call. Fear of failure. Mm-hmm. I have tremendous fear of failure. A lot of these conversations, that's a big driver. I picked up on something. It didn't prevent you from starting the company, but it certainly likely created motivation at a time in your life where, again, Providing for your family is respectfully not a motivation anymore, right? Financial security is not a motivation. It's just like, I want to start my own company. I want to be successful. I want to do it with a partner. But how much was fear of failure a driver in those early years of Raider Hill? Oh, it was, it was significant. It was, it was significant because, again, you, you, you are taking some risk. There's, there's the financial side of the failure, which is which – is fine. You, you got to be honest about it. it. That that issue could have been could have been absorbed if it, if the company didn't work. Mm-hmm. But but the reputation side. You know, yeah. you work you work 30, 40 years to build a reputation in the business, and 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 you've and you've done some good things. And by the way, the, and the business re- rewards you for those good things. So it's it's a, it's a win win situation. And then you put yourself out there. It's a test. There's no question about it. It is it is a test and and it's something that you do every day and it's something that drives us every day because we don't we don't want to fail and and more importantly we have obligations to others. You know, we have people that left other companies that come work for us that had good careers other places and they came to work for us. I feel an enormous sense of obligation to not only give them security but to give them wealth. Now you do because they left. I'm it, which is very valuable and, and meaningful. Like you don't want to let them down. Your teammates, it gets right. back to you being a, a football player, a lineman, which is the, in my experience around football, that would, those, those were the most team, team guys, right? Cause it's never about the offensive line. Well, right? There's no glory in it. <laughs> no glory. <laughs> there's no glory. Yeah, you, they only know your name if, if you get caught holding, yeah, right? Totally. Oh uh, yeah. I got a lot of offensive linemen in my family. So, but it's, I want to ask, 
why did there's a there's not a lot of people who've done what you've done, but there are people. There are a, a lot of people who've who've had very successful careers. They were a, a public CEO. Let's say thousands. Okay, they had lots of money. You're not probably the first person who had the idea like, oh, I'm going to go start my own company and be a founder. But you're one of the very few who did it. So why did I'm going to talk about you in the third person? Why did Dan Horowitz do that? But most people don't. I don't know. I, I can't really speak for them as to why they didn't, didn't just take a guess. No, why they didn't? Why they? Why didn't. are you a different animal? You know, first of all, like I said earlier, I I like to build things. I I, I like to start things. You know, I I like a project. Um, my wife would tell you it it. it Drives her crazy to some extent, you know. I, that was going to be my next question. Hey, if I asked yeah. your wife, would she be like, I needed him out of the damn house? Well, that's part of it, I'm sure. You know, Because he, he'll drive himself crazy. He's going to drive me crazy. Yeah, I mean, there's no... That, that might be the answer. She, she was extremely supportive, and that's probably, oh, I, and that's probably I why. But I, but I, I, but I will... I, 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 like to, I like to build things, and I, and I need a project. And, 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 I, and every now and then... And it could be a little project. It could be, you know, building a house. Mm -hmm. It could be... You do that from time doing, to time. I do. And, but, yeah. you know, it could just, just something different. And this was like really, this was really different. This was really different. It is different. different. I mean, I, we and, just walked the audience through your career. It's these big companies where, yeah. you, where you, you, you found a way to shine, okay, but it's not a startup. Quite the opposite. Well, but you also, you also, have, listen, it, it, for me... I, I really, I really love what I do. So I don't know what I would do if I wasn't working. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to go golf four days a week. I'm a golfer. Huh? I, I know. And, and I just, you I, only go to watch the Giants if they're in the Super Bowl. That's right. And, right. You, and you get me tickets. And I get tickets. Yeah. But I, but I really don't, I really don't, I, I really don't know what I would do if I didn't have something else to do. I, I get bored very easily. Mm -hmm. So, so I need to do something, and I don't have a lot of hobbies outside of outside of of, of work. No grandkids. No grandkids yet, and uh, I just I, I just wanted to stay in the business. You know, I had a I had a I have a lot of friends in this business. I've made a lot of friends in this business. People that not just convenient business friends, people I genuinely like, I and mean, people that I really admire and respect. And I and I didn't want to walk away. And like you said earlier, you're at a point where you get to choose the people you want to work with. Humbly speaking, like yeah, yeah. if you for, get to work with people, part. generally speaking, that you like to work with. You know, my, my very first boss, I'll never forget, Arnold, uh, I was working for the company about six months, and he took me out for lunch, and he said to me, they used to call me Junior because I was the youngest guy in the office. He said, Junior, do you like this business? I said, yeah, I really do. He goes, do you want to stay in this business? I said, yeah, I, I, I really do. He says, that's good. He said, I think you're going to do well. He said, and I think the business will be good to you. He said, but remember one thing. He said, because I'll be dead. So he said, remember one thing. He was 70 at the time. I was in my 20s. He said, by the time you're 50, you either have to have enough money that you don't care about anything or you have to have your own company to control your own destiny because this business is not good to people over 50 who need a job. And he said, so enjoy your success now, work where you have to work, but by the time you're 50, you need to, trust me when I tell you, you need to make a decision. Mm -hmm. 
And that decision is either you have enough walkaway money so you don't care or do your own thing and control your own destiny if you want to stay in the business. And by the time you're 50, you had enough money. And just to be safe, you started your own company. And I thought the timing was good. I mean, I, I remember him yeah. telling, and, and I remember during the course of my career over the, over the, that stuck the, with you. It stuck with me because I saw a lot of people that that no. that are exactly as he described. I mean, I was always surprised when I was 35, 36 years old, and I had people that were names I recognized calling us up looking for jobs, mm. looking for work. 55, 60 year old people who needed. And you said, I don't, and, I don't, and I don't want to be that guy, you know. And and he was the first to say. This is a young man's business and, you know, young, aggressive people can come in here and displace, you know, older, more stagnant people they pretty, be pretty quickly. They at a cheaper price. That's right. So why, why do you think you get that call from, and I'm just picking a number here, 55, looking for, why do you think they were in that position? Why do you think they had not got to a place of having the wealth where they could walk away or founding a company is different. They, okay. A lot of people, that's not for them, but just from a, well, is it, they just didn't grind hard enough to get to a place where they were being compensated or they just didn't have the skills? Was it a God-given thing? Well, I also, I, I think in some cases people get very comfortable. You know, the, the business, as you get older, again, this industry treats you well. And I'm not talking, not everyone gets generationally treated well, but it does treat you well. And, and people are, are victims of their own circumstances or they're victims of, of bad luck within their company, you know, and things happen. And I think there's a lot of people who misplace convenience for security. And I never did that. I always felt that, you know, that there was no company I've ever worked for that couldn't be just as successful, if not more successful, without me. And I really wanted to make sure that, you know, I, I went to work every day feeling very much like I didn't have a lot of security and I had to grind it out and go to work. So convenience for security. Yeah. I'm take that back to the mentality of someone. What, what is it about your mentality that, because convenience always sounds nice. It sounds nice to you. It sounds nice to me. Yeah, it it's like, nice. it's like, you know, hitting the snooze, the snooze button and the, the convenience of staying in bed. But what is it about your mindset and how you approach your life, your profession, pretty much everything you do that never allowed you in terms of self-accountability allowed you to choose convenience over security? I think it was just the way I was raised. Okay. You know, I didn't, I, we, I didn't like, come from. Nature, I, nurture? I think it's a little bit of both. You know, I, I, I'll, I'll never forget when, you know, I was doing pretty well and my wife and I, we bought our first house and my father sat me down and told me what an egregious error it was and that we should be living in a townhouse and saving all of our money because it could all end tomorrow. You know, that was sort of the mentality I grew up in because we because that, gen that cause generation I, that that was a thing that was a thing you know and and I also I also was fortunate enough to to grow up with four grandparents and two great grandparents so who had been through wars and depressions and things of that nature and it was just the nature of our family because we didn't come from a lot so the nature of the family was was that you you by the grace of God got up this morning and you move forward, but that could all end tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And and that was always, you know. So that's the nurture part. That's the nurture part. I mean, my in our family, I'll give you an example. My 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 father, who was who who had obviously great understanding of the of of, of what happened in World War II and things of that nature, and was a, really a history buff. 
You know, when we were little kids, he would not let us ever, ever have our passport expire because he never, because he would say, you don't know when you may have to flee. Mm. You know, tough way to live. But, but one of the biggest disagreements I ever saw my parents have, my parents never argued, was when he found out that my mother, I don't know why it was her responsibility, but whatever, allowed our passports to expire. Because what would happen if we had to flee the country? And, and think of all the people during World War II, particularly Jews in Germany and yeah. places like that in Eastern Europe that died because they, they let their papers yeah. expire because they couldn't get out and things like that. So it was, oh, it's a tough way to live your life and it's a tough – and, I, and I'm, not, I'm, not, you know, I, I'm not advocating that kind of lifestyle but because I didn't grow up the way but he did. But you can empathize how he did. I can empathize how he did and, and there was never a great sense of security it was always it was always keeping your head on a swivel, you know. Don't stand around a pile, right? And in in football, they say don't don't stand no, around. Keep sw- keep your head on a swivel. Well, that was my father's thing, and that's I think that's just the way I was raised. You know, I just think I think it was just you 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 always keep your 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 head on a swivel. So that's nurture. You're raised always keep your head on the swivel. Never take anything for granted. By the grace of God, you woke up this morning. I appreciate everything. And then the nature part, you know, one of the first questions I asked, you know, kind of describe you as a kid. Like, were you always, you know, just just driven? Like, just whatever you chose to do. And maybe you didn't do a lot, but, like, were you just a really driven person? I, I think I think I was. Again, I, 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 I think my passions were somewhat limited. So, for example, academically, in things that I was extremely interested in, I was a very, very good student. And things I wasn't, they, they, I didn't do so well. I, so I think, in, uh, although in, in high school it changed, I'm talking more early, early mm-hmm. on, you know, athletics, whether it's football, lacrosse, I also played lacrosse. I mean, those, those were sports that I, that I was very, very driven in. Other things I didn't care very much about. You know, I'm not a great swimmer, but I didn't really care, you know. <laughs> so I think, I think I picked my spots. And, and truthfully, real estate was one of those spots for me that I really liked. And I liked it because I liked the people. I liked the people. I mean, I remember when I was working on the construction site when all the big shots used to come down and, you know, back in, this was in the 80s, you know, so they had on their big Porsche sunglasses mm-hmm. and they were coming down in their, in, their, in their three-piece suits and their limousines and everything like that. They could not be nicer to me. And I was basically running a labor crew. They could not be nicer to me. And I don't know why. And, and, and they would pull me in and they would ask me questions and they would treat me like a, a, a real human being. And I, and I just remember thinking to myself, this is really – and again, I, I, I talk a lot about my dad who was obviously a, a massive influence in my life. But he used to say to me – because I was going to leave. I was only going to do this for a year mm-hmm. and then I was going to go to law school. And he said to me, he said, if you like the people, stay because it's unusual to work with people you like. He said, if these are nice people – Stay. See what happens. So that's why I stayed, and here we are. They didn't have this word back then, culture, but in the culture of the, the company or the group you're with, that must factor into job satisfaction. It, it, it sure does. It sure does. And, and having and, – and, 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 and it impacts your effort, too, because you really, really want to work hard for these people. You want them to be successful. You know, these people were so kind to me and they gave me so many great opportunities. I just, I just, there was nothing I wouldn't do. There's no hour I wouldn't mm-hmm. put in to help them be successful. 
because they were so kind and so nice and so fair with me. What, if you had to look back, what would be something perhaps you'd do differently? Well, I think, I, I, I think there were times when I gave some people the benefit of the doubt that I should not have. You know, your gut tells you sometimes, I don't know if you ever read the book, Blink. Yes. Well, if Malcolm Gladwell, Malcolm Gladwell right, yeah. Malcolm, Malcolm writes about it's like your gut instinct. The, the, a thick slice or a thin slice. Mm-hmm. And, and if you make decisions with a thin slice or do you wait to have more information and you sort more of your thick slice. Oftentimes is and, and, better. And, 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 and I, I'm a thin slice guy mm-hmm. and I, I questioned myself too many times when my gut told me to do something or my gut told me not to do something or to be involved with someone or to, to do a deal with someone, or et cetera. And I, I, I talked myself out of my gut feeling. And is, I think that's a mistake. Is this about assets or people? More about people. Yeah. More about people. I mean, I, I'll never forget, I, I was very fortunate to have dinner when, at, a, at a conference where I happened to be asked to sit at the table with Colin Powell, mm-hmm. G- General Powell. He wrote a book, Colin Powell on Leadership, which is also a terrific book. And he talks about what Malcolm talks about in, in Blink, where he says, you know, generals, a great general needs between 30 and 70 percent of the information to make a decision. So you have to decide what kind of general you are. If you're a 30% general, people need to know that. They need to get you 30% of the information. And if you're, But if you have less than that, you probably don't have enough. Mm-hmm. If you're a 70% general, that's fine. But if you wait for more than that, you probably waited too long. And I'm a 30% person. And there were times when I was ready to act on that 30%. I talked myself out of it. And that was a mistake. Does that the common refrain? Some because I've asked this question, and and it almost always gets back to, in summary, keeping people around longer that I knew either couldn't do the job, perhaps you know culture cancer or whatever. Yeah, bad partner, bad teammate. Is is that what you're getting at? Is, and that's that's part of it yeah. for sure. And 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 that's 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 the gist of it. Is that you 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 kind of knew this wasn't going to work, but you convinced yourself that it could. Mm-hmm. And you should have trusted your gut. Kind of like a, you know, a savior, like I can save this, I can fix this. Maybe he's not as bad as I thought. Maybe, you know, this or that, or, you know, maybe she's not what people have told me about her reputationally, et cetera, et cetera, whatever it is. And, or I can fix it. You know, you have, so sometimes it's your own hubris that gets in the way and say, yeah, I know that was his problem, but I'll fix that. You know, it won't be like that with me. And you realize you're just as human as everybody else, mm-hmm. and and you're going to suffer the same consequences as everybody else. But trusting my gut, it takes you a while to do that because you 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 know you're young and you're inexperienced sometimes, and you're insecure and you're not sure, and you, and you want to you want to do deals or whatever it might be. But but that's probably when I think back about the biggest mistakes that I've made, it's trusting people that I shouldn't have trusted, and I knew I shouldn't have trusted them. Yeah. I, same. Yeah. Let me let me pivot here because we're getting close to the end, y'all. Current economic conditions. I just want to ask you, what do you see going on in the current comedy? Where are things headed? Looking for some guidance and advice here. Well, obviously, we're in a weird time. 
because there's there's the pressure of inflation at the same time we have very low unemployment and things of that nature and although that will probably turn and unemployment will go up a little bit but we are I, I'm not a I'm not a huge doomsday scenario person where mm-hmm. I think we're headed for you know maybe it's because I just lived through the great financial crisis I'm still not over it I think I have post traumatic stress disorder from my days back back then but. I, I think we have to be realistic about where we are. You know, you watch TV today and they talk about inflation, 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 and everything else. The truth of the matter is there's only one statistic that matters when it comes to inflation, and that's wage. wage. And I don't care. You know, everyone talks about the price of milk or the price of gas or the price of eggs and all this other stuff. And that's very nice because they can run it on the news cycles 24-7 and, and, and get people all panicked. But the only thing, and you learn this, is, people who are listening know this from Econ 101 or Business School 101, the only thing that really, really affects inflation is wage. And that's the one statistic that, that I watch. And I think it's, it's, it's by far- If you um, give people more money, they're going to buy more things. They're going to buy more things and prices are going to go. I mean, it's just, it's, just it's, 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 it's pretty simple. So the wage inflation thing, and I, and I think we're going to start to see that come down, and I think inflation will be under control. The thing that surprises me the most, and maybe it's because of my age and, and, and the, the time that I've spent in the business, we have always run this business where debt costs are roughly 200 to 250 basis points above the benchmark. And the people who are out there saying to us, interest rates are going to come back down, you know, we're going to get back down, et cetera, et cetera, we just need to get through this period. I'm really not sure what they're talking about. I, I really don't think that's going to be the case. I think interest rates are going to be higher for much longer than people are talking about. And I think as an industry, we just have to figure out how to operate our businesses at 200 basis points above the benchmark. Mm-hmm. Because it was that in the 70s. It was that in the 80s. It was that in the 90s. I mean, it just that's just where we run the business. And I don't, I don't see the, the, the tenure or the SOFR or anything else going down to where it was. And those people who are hoping that it will, I think, are going to be disappointed. So I think interest rates are going to stay up longer than people are currently anticipating. And not all people, obviously, just some but most, people, yeah. but, but a lot. And, and I think that from a business perspective, if, you, if you're a, a, a consumer of debt, which most people in real estate are, you have to assume – that your cost is going to be 200 basis points against the benchmark and, and, and whatever, and that benchmark is going to be about where it is for a while. So if 10-year treasuries are, let's, I didn't look today, let's say 350, okay? So your, your guidance is you're probably just down the middle of the fairway going to be borrowing at five and a half. Five and a half to six, depending which, on which who the sponsor is. Generally right? speaking, you know, just starting at stabilized deals, stabilized with debt constants, you know, including amortization, you're probably six and a half sevens, maybe higher. Yeah, that's about right. And that, but that's not historically inaccurate. You know, that's no, just, no, that's, it's that's just, it's, sort of you know, it's, uh, that's the sort last of where we are. Years, yeah. I get it. I get it. But that those were good days. We're seeing yields go up. We are. We've seen them move. You know, I'd say on average between 100 and 125 basis points in the last six seven months. It's just they have another 150 to go. Yeah. I think so. Or, you know, just in terms of this price dislocation, it's. uh, But I think, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I know everyone likes to to, to complain about this or complain about that and et cetera. And and there's a lot of, you know, divisive politics that are involved in all this. You know, there's a couple things that we got to keep in mind. One is 
you know, when we went through the COVID situation, whether it was this administration or the prior administration, there was no playbook for that. Everyone was doing the best they could given. And the fact that we flooded the, 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 the economy with capital at a time when people weren't spending it because they couldn't, and therefore their savings rate went up. Therefore, when the doors opened, you know, we had massive inflow of capital. Good time to be in retail, right? Good time to be in retail. <laughs> but, I mean, you got to be realistic. You, you, know, know, you can criticize all that. to be everywhere. You can criticize all that now. But there was no really great playbook for how to handle that. And, and I think people did the best they could no matter what side of the aisle you're on. And I think the same thing is true – you know, with Powell and and the Fed, you know, I, I I'm not happy at all that the interest rates have gone up. It's it's, it's terrible for our business. Do you think they waited too long? I I, I don't. I mean, I, I you know, I, I think it it was a situation. Well, you have lunch with Powell in a couple of days. You gotta. No, I, I again, <laughs> I I I, don't, I I just don't think any of us are really in a position to second guess it because I, it, it, they did the best they could. I, I, I mean, I, I I think his intentions were good. But I also think we hadn't seen runaway inflation like that before, yep. right? So we hadn't seen runaway. So there was really, again, no playbook for that exactly in, in recent memory. It's a tough spot to be in. It's a tough spot to be in, and we'll muscle our way through it. And for those people who you know have been around a long time, we go through this all the time. I mean, some sort of blip, recession, speed bump, whatever you want to call it. And you just put your head down, you go to work, you fight your way through it, and, 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 and you do the best you can. I wasn't around when Volcker, but Volcker's this like folk hero. And I know Volcker, yeah. Volcker in many ways is, my understanding is who Powell is looking to more or less model behavior, but everybody talks about him now, you know, and, and puts him on a pedestal. But I'm sure when he was hiking rates, what, 600 bips, then down 400, then up 600, people were not happy. Well, at the time, he was, a, he was a villain. Yeah. Yeah. But so we'll see what happens. I, I, I think things are going to be tough. I think this is not going to be a great year. I think next year will, will also be a slog well, and, let, and we'll see what happens. Let me ask you. So right now, at least in commercial real estate, I think this actually applies to a lot of industries, even outside real estate, but there's just such price dislocation and, yeah. and cause because this is very simple. Borrowing costs go up three to 400 basis points and cap rates don't move right away. They never do. Mm -hmm. And they're moving up. They still have a long way to go. That's what we're seeing. But eventually cap rates do increase. Either unmotivated sellers get out of the market, motivated sellers respond to buyer pricing. And eventually the market resets and things get better. What I'm, and this is the question I'm asking you, what now I'm starting to think through is the actual operating fundamentals of the product types. Like if we go into a recession, depending whether it's a soft landing, a hard landing, you know, if there is increasing unemployment and wage growth does disappear and retailers are going to feel it, industrial is going to feel it, multi is going to feel it without even touching office. But like to where you actually start to see vacancies rise and rents go back down, even as cap rates are stabilizing, that creates a whole new second kind of punch to the gut for real estate. What are your thoughts on that happening, that, that, that deterioration of the actual income? The revenue, you know, and and talk to us about the you know the four main food groups. We could start with office because it's the easiest. Well, you know, I think I think the problem we're all making when we talk about real estate is we call it just real estate. I don't know, I don't know what that is in the sense that, for example, retail. There's a very big difference between malls and open air, and there's a very big difference between power centers and grocery anchor centers in the open-air environment. Sure. And there's a big difference between all that and street retail. And there's a big difference between that and outlets. So I think, 
I think we have to start differentiating a little bit more. And, and, and when you read these articles or you hear people talk about retail, I'm not sure what they're talking about. What, which segment of the retail world are people referring to? Because I think to your point, which is a good one, every, every one of them is going to respond differently, right? The ones, that, you know, the ones that are at moderate to budget price points tend to do okay. Yeah, do well. Okay. Yeah, necessity. And necessity and things of that nature. So, I, but those that are maybe specialty and and and, and very high end, and if we still have contraction in, in in the stock market and things of that nature, it could have an impact on luxury. You just don't know. So, I think I think I think when people are looking to invest in real estate, or even talk about it in a in a in a in a, in a more of a global way, we have to decide what. We're talking about. I mean, office is a good example. Everyone's talking about office, right? Because office is sort of like the new retail, right? We joke about the fact that retail finally we're not last, right? There are people that <laughs> people that I think someone <laughs> just closed the deal. Is that are they playing house music over there? No, they're swinging the bell so hard. That's what that noise is. Oh man! Uh, Welcome to Matthews. Yeah, that's good. That's a good sign. Sometimes the inmates run the prison here. Yeah, but that, but we'll for go, example, we'll but there's a difference. Up, there's a difference between suburban and 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 urban office, right? I mean, there is. Yeah. So, so so I think I think that's 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 the important thing. Listen, I, I think office has got a long way to go. It's going to be a very difficult business, and it's a, it feels a lot like the mall business did, like in '15. You know when when there has to when be, the capex was was yeah. running high, rents were coming down, things of that nature. And Not, there, there was a lot of product in the mall space, and and I think to your point to office that it just there isn't there is no future. Like it has to be put to pasture. It, it it's a little harder in, yeah. in, in office, particularly urban, right? I mean, if you go, there's not a lot you can do with that, and can this. All this talk about conversion to residential is That's, not so easy. No, it, I mean, it, just the per square foot to convert, even if a city wants, I mean, cities have to, unless they want, like, because you have these office buildings built, in, you know, in some cities, the 30s, the 50s, the 60s, the 80, that are, I would say, functionally obsolete. They're, it is going to be very hard to lease them. And so then they say, talk about conversion and the math behind that doesn't pencil. So then the cities in some way might have to, financially uh, they create some sort of incentive, some sort of structure, and it's not a co-invest, but to make it pencil, and they don't have the money. And so the, the new glass towers, the Class A, floor-to-ceiling glass. They're fine. They're fine. They'll be fine. Boxes. Yeah. The other thing is the shape of the buildings. It just, just, yeah. doesn't, just doesn't lend itself to residential. You know, no. office buildings are are a different shape than right. residential buildings. So, I mean, there's there's a lot. So I so I think... I. I, I I, I'm probably ducking your question a little bit more than you want, but I, but it's 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 hard to put your arms around it because, you know, the balance sheets of in retail, for example, are extraordinarily strong. Mm -hmm. They're stronger in the open air sector than they are in the mall sector. So if we're going to have economic compression in some way, is it going to hurt the malls more than the open air? Probably will. I mean, you know, what's what's the strength of the tenant? You know, our business and in, in, in retail and almost every business really runs on the credit quality of the cash flow. And what about multi, multifamily? So multifamily to me is is I I, I like multifamily. Mm -hmm. I I always have, and I I continue to like multifamily. It, I think it did get a little ahead of itself. I, I can honestly say that I, there's some incredibly surprising results that were posted by some of the best public companies out there, and 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 I think the growth and the rent, et cetera, et cetera, was was good. If we're going to start to see 
wage growth temper, if not recede to some extent, obviously that's going to have an impact on multi. But I still, I still think multi is a safe sector if you get it at the right price. Don't forget, in our business, you make money on the buy. You don't make money on the sell. Mm-hmm. And if you overpay, you got a problem no matter what, and you can't get your way out of it. And if you get it at the right basis, you'll be fine, even in tough times. And I do think, I do think that multi is a good investment, just not quite at the price that it was. If you had $1, a mentor of mine used to ask me this question. Hmm. If you had $1, where would you invest it today? If you had $1 to invest, where would you invest it? Company or sector? Anything. If I had $1, I would invest in Walmart. No, there, there's the answer. I would invest in Walmart. All right. I'm going to put it, all my life savings in Walmart. It, that, that'll move the market. <laughs> and and my, I, I've seen them navigate tough times before. You know, I've, I've, I've done business with Walmart for almost 40 years. There are times when I've certainly counted them out and the markets counted them out and they've never, I've learned two things in my career. <laughs> One is I never, never bet against New York and never bet against Walmart. And if, if, if I knew the first lesson, I never bet against New York. I'm yeah, a, I'm a yeah. big believer. I were open yeah. in our office tomorrow. I'm yeah. gonna fly up. Congratulations. There. Thank you. But I, but I, I, I think Walmart going into this cycle we're in is extremely well positioned to be a, a winner. And for all the listeners, Dan is not talking his own book right now. No. This is this is a genuine opinion. Yeah, I think I, I can call it some financial advice here. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely not. But I, but they're a company that just continually impresses under the most difficult of circumstances. Last question: When you when you look back on your career, it's a it's a deep question. Is a what is one adjective or, or word that you would hope in general people would use to describe you, Dan Horowitz? I think fair. You know, I, I'm, 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 I've always been a, an advocate that of being fair with people, maybe to a fault, maybe too direct. Some people don't like that, but but I but I mean it. It's sort of a, it's, if I say it, it's it's sincere. I'd like people to think that I've been fair in in my dealings, fair in my relationships. Um, would you say that's treating people how you how they would like to have been treated? Yeah, I think I, I think so. I think so. Just and and then it doesn't always work, you know. Sometimes you're fair and and you think you're fair and they don't think you're fair and I get it. But in general, I'd like to say that people think I'm a fair person, and that I've treated them fairly. Well, Dan, I can always say you have been more than fair to me. Uh, you've been <laughs> one of my biggest supporters, and I'm extremely grateful for the support over the years and the fact you came into town and. And do this with me. Um, I very much enjoyed this conversation. I enjoy. I'm looking forward to our dinner tonight. We're gonna break out a little nice wine and uh, our trip to New York. Looking and, forward to it. And and continued success and growth for you, your family, Raider, the Raider Hill family. And again, I just can't thank you enough. So thanks so much for coming on. It's been an honor and a privilege, really. Thank, thank you for having me. Appreciate you. Thank you. What you know about rolling down in the deep when your brain goes numb? You can call that mental freeze when these people talk too much. Put that in slow motion. Yeah.